basically the Course is saying that, that we're surrounded by love and we're surrounded by, by, uh, by God. And that we have blocks to our, uh, to our experiencing that. And the course, the whole course's reason and, and what it wants to do is wants to get rid of these blocks to our experiencing uh, love's presence in our life. And the blocks are basically our ego. So what the course is doing is it's teaching us about our ego and how to transcend our ego and how to... Uh, somehow see past it. Welcome back to Wiseman Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Glennis, and I'm here with my co-host, Arlen Golden. How are you doing, Arlen? I'm doing well, Sean. Uh, thanks for asking. How are you? Uh, I'm doing well, uh, besides um, nearly sustaining oh, yeah, a, an injury shortly before recording that Perf- we're prayers up for sean's thumb put me on the injury list yeah um would it would it surprise you uh to learn that there's no entry for skier millionaire skier in uh studs turkle's working oh that's a shame (laughs) that's a shame would have left Uh, to come in with that (laughs) what about minor we see we see some minors that's true yeah i i didn't check but I, i i don't recall that being one of them that is a strange scene. I guess we can get to it, but um, but uh, we're we're here to talk about Aspen. Um, we're happy to be back. Um, really getting into this uh, the '90s stuff, uh, yeah. starting here. Um, but this is his uh, his twenty fourth documentary, and, and um, I guess his. 26th film overall. 26th portrait of his community, uh, as is, is said by, you know, I, I only I only call it out because it's one of those scene-ending lines that just kind of <laughs> linger in the cut, you know? But yeah, this, tell, the, 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 the hype... what scene you're, you're referring the, to. The hyper-realist painter who's having a gallery opening of, like, her depictions of vending machines and like fire hoses and like just like boring stuff that she says uh are very marketable to second homeowners um and that scene ends with her talking about when reagan was elected and the family became important again and politics got conservative and the art got conservative art mirrors the times and so um um I just began to do what I always had done best. And I painted a, a series of paintings of my little community where I live. I have 26 paintings of my community. Stop. Cut. Next scene. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, this, this, like you said, this is what most would probably consider the 24th film of Frederick Weissman. But it technically, if you're going to include Sonia Henney and uh, Serafita to fudge the numbers, it is the 26th. And I mean... I, I just can't think of any other reason Fred would leave that line hanging like that right, than right. than to make that reference. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Getting I, into I, it. Yeah, I really like that. Um, so Aspen, uh, as we'll get into, there's a lot going on in Aspen. But um, it was filmed during six weeks in the winter of 1990, uh, and it premiered at the end of 1991. 
Um, and this is uh, taken, I think, or I, I think that this is inspired by uh, Fred's own mm. love for skiing. Um, he's, I think he still skis, uh, but it's, mm. it's always been like one of the pastimes that he has always mentioned that he likes to do when he's not uh, working. Yeah, I think, was it uh, Eric Hines who mentioned way back that, that Fred's a skier? And, and this was a bit of a, you know, I don't, not necessarily like a self-document, but, but the, he wasn't just diving in uh, sort of blind like he, he has in, in other films, you know, where he says he doesn't do a lot of research, he doesn't know the topic going yeah. into it, you know. It's, he knew what he was getting into. Yeah, right. I think it, it seems like he had, you know, some some kind of plan or, of attack, uh, you might even say, on this one. Um, and it, I, I found a quote where he said that uh, he talked about his decision to shoot this in color. He said... Aspen I did in color, although I was tempted to do the film in black and white. Mm. I remember how terrific Kamenix looked in Vadim's, Roger Vadim, the filmmaker, Vadim's version of Les Lausanne's Dangerous, the Dangerous Liaisons. Uh, But I thought it was more important to get the natural color of the mountains and the color Mm. of the ski clothes. And you you can't really imagine. I I can't imagine this film uh, without the color of the ski clothes. Yeah, no, it it looks great. This this whole era, like late eighties, early nineties of doc filmmaking, I don't know if it was just like the color stock that was being used at the time, but I I feel like you know things come to mind like Thin Blue Line or Paris is Burning. They just have this kind of like vibrant color mm-hmm. quality to them that that you don't get too much before, and you certainly don't get anymore. Um, well, also yeah. our guest, uh, so we speak on the second half of this episode with A.S. Hamra, um, the critic for Baffler Magazine, um, and uh, he talks a lot about just the color of this period, um, and he was, uh, yeah. I think he he, he uh, remembers it more than we do, just because he is our uh, elder, but um, I think that's also part of it, and and important to the work is is the, the colors of the clothes and also the colors of the interiors, uh, as he, mm-hmm. uh, talks about, um, better than I could later. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, I, I definitely went, you know, we were both alive here and, you know, I have toys. I feel like that were colors like the, we see here. You, you think about design elements that have sort of been, uh, turned into nostalgia, like, you know, the, the jazz cup, kind of zigzag mm-hmm. thing or just kind of uh the sorts of of shapes and like flat color uh patterns you would you would see on something like i don't know like a nickelodeon ad or something sure but su- super vibrant like like i think i think you you uh i maybe came to this through like nba style at the time or watching mm-hmm. like white man can jump you know like like all that kind of stuff it just like was such a a vibrant poppy thing saved by the uh, bell happening and and into the clinton years you know i feel Mm -hmm. like it 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 really took off after that too but yeah yeah saved by the bell exactly um so yeah there's there's certainly a period interest in this film and i mean you know not not contemporaneously but but viewing it now um it's it's really fun to just kind of uh navigate those those spaces and those aesthetics yeah um and before we 
we'll talk about reviews before we really get into the meat of the film, but I just wanted to say kind of up top about like how entertaining this film is. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it's it, it, a lot of that is just because it's structured so well. Like, I think it's, it's really uh, unique within Wiseman's work as like, just like scene after scene after scene of just like really meaty, like interesting things that all play with each other well. Like um, I, I think there's like a handful of things between like the 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 painting scene and the um, men's fellowship div- on divorce scene and <laughs> yeah, the ESL class and the meditation and the homeopathy stuff. And um, uh, there, there's a bunch of them. The gallery that you mentioned, the Clappers a- anniversary, the, the the book club on on uh, Flaubert. We talk also about all of these with um, with Scott, uh, but it just like moves at such a quick pace. It feels like it's just so entertaining because all of those scenes have have something unique to to really sink your teeth into. Yeah, yeah, I, I recall our, our combo with Scott was a bit like fast and furious, kind of freewheeling scene to yeah. scene because that's that's the way the film is. But even still, it's not quite the same tempo as like central park was i don't think you know even though it's so chock full of like a lot of variety of great scenes i i feel like overall the scenes are longer they're a bit more meditative you're allowed to sort of like exist uh in those scenes uh, a bit longer and feel your way around and and try and like uh, derive some meaning more than in the previous film and 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 less um Less of the pillow shots, I think. I mean, they're here, certainly. They're but here, I mean, yeah. I mean, in Central Park, they were, you know, almost scenes unto themselves. Right, right. Um, whereas here, you know, they serve the kind of usual function of transitions between scenes. Yeah. And it's just like, I don't know, it's such a comedy. And there's so many, like, uh, there's, there's so many... Um, little like enclaves of like people doing things that are just inherently funny. Um, Mm -hmm. Like their existence, I think is funny. Like, you know, we talk about how this is in part a a cynical uh, film. And I think that there's just a lot for, for him to, to, uh, to look at here, but um, uh, we can get into the reviews. I know, I know one of them, I can't remember which, but off the top of my head, but um, one of them talks about how uh, tedious, it gets and it's just like one of those things where it's like what I, I don't know what what people are asking for from a documentary anymore. Maybe that was the not coming one. That was uh, that no, one is uh, that not was good. Pretty pretty harsh. Um, yeah, but yeah, I, I, maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves. Um, but on, on, just on the comedy note, you know, I I think maybe more than any previous film uh this this is like overtly a comedy it's almost like mm-hmm. only a comedy you know and and like you said it's it could it's it's got a, a cynic cynical streak to it and it's it's pretty biting um i think i think there the subject gives fred license to be a bit more uh, unambiguous than he tends to be, you know. Like, like it, there's certainly still, you know, shades of gray and oh, yeah. and empathy and and you know, uh, different readings you could you could come away with. Um, but I think you know, 
nobody's crying for the multimillionaires like getting drunk in the snow right right right. (laughs) yeah Uh, or or um we'll get into it uh but uh okay let's start with uh wapo our old pal tom shales uh who calls calls this one of his least pessimistic films which is just funny based on what you just said (laughs) um and uh it's also funny because there's a big discussion during the book club of of whether whether uh, the Flaubert story is a pessimistic or an optimistic um, uh, perspective, uh, Tom Shales thinks that this film is, is, is his least pessimistic. Interestingly, um, Shales uh, said that Aspen has been uh, turned into a shrine to self, adding mm. that the, the majestic scenery inspires introspection, which is... Uh, I don't know where he's getting that from. I do think that Aspen is a shrine to, sh- to self, um, mm-hmm. but I, I don't, I don't, I don't see the way that he means it, but um, uh, buttressing his point, he mentions the art class, which is just, you know, the teacher flattering the, the participants as, as mm-hmm. well as the Bible study where the men are kind of looking for these polls, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, which I'm not so sure that it, it's that cut and dry, but, but many of them are, are definitely not being honest with themselves, but uh, there's a quote from Shale's, Everywhere one sees people trying to outrun boredom, outrun meaninglessness, outrun mortality. Wiseman doesn't seem to be making fun of all of them, only some of them. And he says his film closes with a sermon by a hip preacher that is actually quite moving. Uh, I, I also did <laughs> so hip. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah you, you could say outrun. You could also say like... Uh, fall down as in fall, fall down a mountain maybe you know like like i feel like that's a metaphor it's hard to get away from as this kind of controlled descent uh repeatedly i think that you know we bring up sisyphus a lot but there's like this sort of eternal climb and fall that is represented by the act of skiing you know um and probably speaks to the uh diverse social strata depicted in the film maybe a little bit mm-hmm. um but but the the search for meaning thing i mean it's like uh i think mamber um also had something uh, uh that's um the varieties of seeking that this sort of wealth age leisure leads to like like this sort of spiritual emptiness i think that people are looking to fill in all these different kinds of ways that we see in the film but like that that there's this pervading thing that even though uh there is all this like material splendor there's like a spiritual lack and everybody is striving to address that in one way Mm -hmm. or another yeah the uh the newsweek piece also gets to that um one of the one of the things from this um, I also thought was worth noting is he says uh, we mostly see Aspen portrayed as this waspy Disneyland, mm-hmm. uh, and some of these people might look silly and maybe they'll think Wiseman is being cruel, but ultimately Aspen looks like a pretty great place to be. Um, <laughs> which you know I'm guessing Wiseman agrees. You know, like considering he is an avid skier, he probably does think it's a pretty great place. But um, Shales also points out the yeah. 60 Minutes correspondent, Ed Bradley. I mean, I'm not saying his film is trying to convey that, but... Well, I mean, I, you know, I think about, you know, some scenes like in, in the the 
boogie woogie uh, <laughs> gift shop or whatever you know that just seemed like hell on earth you know <laughs> oh, <laughs> just yeah like... de- definitely but i don't think wiseman's <laughs> going there and being like i gotta go to boogies <laughs> <laughs> yeah 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 um, like yeah weissman's aspen is probably different than like weissman's film aspen yeah, right yeah yeah uh, but Shields points out that uh, the 60 Minutes correspondent, um, Ed Bradley, is one of the guys we see working out, which Scott also mentions, which I thought was interesting because I didn't recognize him. No, yeah, I guess, you know, that that just shows our age a little bit, but I just thought it was a dude on a treadmill. Right. Um, we have the LA Times uh, piece by Chris Willman. Uh, it starts pretty rough by saying that it's a hard sit for any non-Espinian and also calling Wiseman's form uh, a lack of style and saying there's no discernible point of view. He just says it's two and a half hours of seemingly random shots. Um, he mis- mischaracterizes Verite uh, right. in the process. Um, you know, I think I think what we'll find in these reviews is, or, or at least a couple at least, is um, people people seeming like they have some skin in the game to to a certain degree or like like coming with experiences and preconceptions of aspen Mm -hmm. and being disappointed that those aren't present in the film you know and 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 seeing that as a a fault of the film and and weissman's yeah i i mean i think we see that in an upcoming piece i also saw that in in a um an acquaintance's letterbox review of this as well yeah Um, which is interesting but uh, well i mean i think too it's like this is even even as weissman heads i don't think this is the film you expect is coming if you're like going chronologically and you haven't seen aspen before like i don't think this is the the examination or treatment of the subject that that you might be expecting you know right i agree even if you're familiar with his city films uh of late Mm -hmm um this is different from those and we can talk about why but um but yeah so uh wilman's piece there's just like sort of this immediately a lack of engagement uh with the text and you would kind of (laughs) it reads like one of the variety pieces that that we've read (laughs) um but he he thinks wiseman's portraying their spiritual life as healthy and diverse and also like shales calls the, the the sermon at the end moving um and then he ends the piece by poking fun at the film's leisurely pace (laughs) yeah and he says uh i guess back to what we were just talking about he says there laments that there's no celebrity shindigs that have been documented as yeah like like, i don't know why you're expecting that i mean i I, it's clear you know writing in hollywood that i guess you know people would go to aspen uh and spend time there but like to to find find that to be a lack in the film when you know how how often in a documentary are you seeing stuff like that uh struck me and why as you odd. care yeah, yeah yeah and and the but the haven't even gotten to the what i found to be the gravest uh mischaracterization was that the film has no discernible point of view mm-hmm. which which is just like you said like just a disengagement with the text I like said you're that, just yeah. Yeah, yeah that's yeah like you said yeah. yeah yeah uh yeah he says it's two and a half hours of seemingly random shots <laughs> so you know i mean nice, nice try chris but um yeah i mean you, yeah. you you gotta you got to come to the film uh open and meet it on its terms this is your and, job 
Yeah, right. right. <laughs> Man, I mean, uh, not to beat a dead horse, but what what a life it must have been. Yeah, to, I know. <laughs> I walk be, past. Be paid to, to write these things. Yeah, it's funny. Um, I, as a short digression, I was walking. I, I work uh, some days in, in Lansing, Michigan, and, and was like walking uh, to my dentist office uh, a couple of weeks ago. And you walk past the Lansing State Journal offices, which are completely empty now. Oh, and, and nobody's in the building. And it is funny, like reading these reviews and just thinking about the difference between what these journalists' life were like as opposed to like most journalists nowadays. And just, um, it's just a wild, it's a wild, uh, it's a wild uh, dif- <laughs> difference. I don't know. It, yeah, but, you know, I mean, a lot went into uh, to these jobs and they were viable careers, um, but it doesn't mean they were good. Yeah. I mean, again, not to labor or hang around here too long, but like the I do have some sympathy for these like uh, staff, you know, major paper critics who have to just watch everything that comes out for their job you know like like you would go crazy if you had to watch everything that comes out now like like i i tried to actively avoid things that i think i probably won't enjoy you know like like or or rather i I seek out things that i really want to watch i think is better you know but like if if and and you have to imagine too that people are all coming to this job I mean, it is an assumption. I think like Ebert kind of fell into it, but um, like com- coming to it from a love of film and cinema, right? And and that might get like kind of chipped away at uh, gradually over time as you watch, you know, whatever studio fodder is coming out week after week because you you have to. It's your assignment. So I have I have some level of um sympathy there well, but also but, some of these yeah. people might have just been pushed onto this desk like this might not have been like their original beat you know um, right right exactly so. and then and then also too you're watching you know i don't know off the top of my head whatever came out in 91 i'm just looking around the room but like like and then aspen comes along and you're like you know you're not really primed i guess in in the same way um and, still thinking and about goodfellas <laughs> how good it was well yeah i mean both great films but um yeah you know i mean like like sit we'll we'll talk later about the the chicago reader piece which we both really liked um but like there i think there is a difference between it being a beat thing and in retrospect like actively wanting to cover this right film, you and know like uh, that reminds me i was gonna say i think when we get to the later films like from the uh 2010s which um you know i don't know how we're gonna handle the reviews then because there's just so much more because yeah. of the internet but um it'll be interesting as we like wade through them personally and see that like some of these people are doing these things for free or whatever and that doesn't mean that they're good at it either. <laughs> like, there's going to be a lot of right. yeah. a lot of shit that we're going to read. But um, it, I don't know. I mean, it's it's just uh, it's interesting because um, you know Wiseman's working in in a style that he calls novelistic, um, and I think and like you know as I've said many times, like the more I like the deeper I get into this, the more it makes sense to me, um, and that is like a form that people are very familiar with is accepted as, as, you know, uh, something with its own set of criteria and yada, yada. 
but because he's working in a different form, it just like totally throws off a lot of people and mm-hmm. uninter- and and just isn't of interest uh, to a lot of people because you come to film and you expect a certain thing. And and also, I think you know we've talked a lot about this kind of divide between like film critics and TV critics as it relates to Weissman. As as mm-hmm. far as I could tell, it it didn't seem like this really played fests, or or most of the reviews seem to be referencing the PBS broadcast. Mm-hmm. So so I'm making the assumption that that most of these folks were were TV critics as well. Yeah, or maybe it played fests and people just didn't really cover it. But yeah. Um, Okay, we have Newsweek, Harry Waters. Um, so right off the gate, he kind of nails that the film is about this quest for the spiritual. And uh, Barry Keith Grant mentions uh, his review in the book, but we'll get to that. Um, but he says, um, there are few towns on earth so wrenched between nature and human artifice, between old West values and the whims of the super rich at play. Um, and I think he has some great insights about Wiseman's ability to be both satiric and open and respectful of his subjects. Um, and besides calling parts of it a bit tedious, uh, like I was, I was talking about mm-hmm. earlier, I, I think he really does a good job. Um, he's, he's also the only one to mention the ending prayer, uh, how it includes the Denver Broncos um, yeah. as a non sequitur. But what do you think of Harry Waters? Yeah, that, that was a good line. Um, I think he, he was, one of the ones writing contemporaneously to that, that seemed to zero in on the uh, wedding anniversary scene, which is mm-hmm. like, you know, so key as yeah. far as kind of complicating the, the sort of attack notion of the, in the film. Mm-hmm. Uh, even, even so though, he does uh, call Aspen Weissman's target rather than his subject, which <laughs> I thought was kind of interesting and telling. Um, but, but of that scene, he's, he says, amid the long loving testimonials of children and grandchildren, the best of the human spirit glows like a full Aspen moon, uh, you know, a, a bit flowery, but I think, <laughs> I, th- I think, I think the sentiment rings true and like, like, you know, something I, I thought is like, just how, how amazing it is for this family that, this anniversary is part of a Frederick Weissman film and that they can, yeah. you know, just like have it and be like, Oh yeah. That like, you know, uh seminal f- documentarian filmed <laughs> one of our, you know, warmest family gatherings. And it was a big, you know, moment for our parents, you know, it's like, that's just gotta be really special. Yeah. That's really interesting. Um, I hadn't thought about that, but it is kind of touching. Um, not bad for a guy named Harry Waters. Uh, <laughs> uh, New York Times uh, reviewed um, by Trip Gabriel. Um, I'll just say I'll just say say this without any uh, just further comment. But the the fir- one of the first interviews I had when I moved to the Bay Area was uh, for an editing production hybrid job at kink.com and uh one of the one of the questions they asked me was how do you feel about muddy waters <laughs> that just reminded that just reminded me of that but all right continue please um prefer harry uh <laughs> yeah. so the, the 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 new york times piece uh by trip gabriel is a profile you know there's interview stuff um, but he's also, you know, talking about the film, mm-hmm. but Gabriel says, uh, Wiseman's vision of the good life in Aspen is decidedly un- unglamorous and even pathetic, which, uh, is kind of funny. Um, but he talks about how the skiers don't look like 
world class or super sleek, which For reminds sure. me of the funny shot of the woman just like crawling down the slope very slowly. <laughs> oh my god, yeah, poor lady. <laughs> <laughs> Um, he ends the interview discussing the, the lack of narration, which uh, he asks Fred about and, and gets answers we're very familiar by now with uh, about not wanting to exert more control or wanting viewers to fill in the gaps themselves and, and wanting his structure to do the talking. Um, but other than that, there's a pretty telling quote about the ESL class, but uh, I was going to save it for then in, unless you want to talk about it now. Uh, no, you, you, we could save it, but I, I mean, yeah, the, the key thing for me in this one was that, you know, it's nice to have some engagement and recognition with structure right. as, you know, a tool of meaning creation. Um, yeah. not, not something a lot of critics seem to pick up on, but you know, we know it's so key, um, how, how he structures his films and, and what he wants us to, to take away, uh, from them. I mean, like, you know, we, we were talking a bit off mic about like just that quick little minor scene, you know, and, and, uh, how it's embedded within the side of the hill, side of the mountain that, you know, everyone else we've been watching on has been treating like a playground. And here it is a site of like intense labor, uh, which I guess is speaking to, to the town's like mining history that has largely been overtaken by, you know, the tourism and leisure industry as depicted here. Um, but, but, you know, just a, a couple minutes like that, just speaks volume about what Fred is trying to get at. Right. Yeah. That scene is so interesting of the minor, like just the way it's shot and it just, it, something about it feels like omniscient or something like it's kind of, it's kind of like uh, above the town or like operating at, at points. It, it, it's, um, it's like these people who are kind of awake and working in this town, but none of the people actually ever see them. Um, sort of caretakers. Kind of, well, just just yeah. talking about just kind of like the visual vibrancy as mm-hmm. we have, and then all of a sudden we're thrust into this darkness that's only illuminated, you know, by the by the work lights, mm-hmm. you know, and and it they're they're framed by darkness, you know. Davy Davy doesn't zoom in; he he goes wide and shows them, you know, amidst in the midst of this cave. And how does it end? It ends yeah. with them dumping mm-hmm. <laughs> all this material, like it visually like directly onto the skiers below right and it's shot from over the shoulder it would be it, it would be a, a different feeling if he was shooting them from the opposite side like there is a mm, yeah yeah and i think it goes to like um you know something that we talk a lot about is his affinity for uh labor and his like care about the people who do the labor um the way that davy shoots that i think does a lot for that without um, it, it's just an economical way to convey that. Yeah. And, and also, I mean, what, what is the sign, uh, out on the mine entrance? Uh, the mine is called compromise. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like, 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 you know, as, as, as much of a tell as, as ever there's been, but what, what's the compromise the town has made, right? Is that the, right. the actual residents, you know, the people who live there and work there are relegated to these dark, uh, totally sequestered spaces while everyone else, you know, is just having a ball. But I think, you know, also, um, that's so key to this film. And I think, you know, we'll, we'll get to it, but like people have talked about 
you know, and I, and I, I mentioned earlier the kind of film you expect this to be kind of looking at the workings of the resorts, you know, what's going on behind the scenes in the kitchen or like, you know, uh, waiters or staff people, um, people working the lifts, you know, like, like that, that kind of stuff that, that, you know, the, the, what did Miriam call it? Like front stage, backstage Mm -hmm. kind of thing. Right. Like, like, but we don't get that. And I think there's a thing in this film that maybe Weissman is mirroring the experiences of the leisure class here that, that perhaps all that stuff is so actively hidden from view. So uh, that, that, shining a light on it would be um just like not true to the experience of being there um you know i think i think you you could call it like leisure fetishism almost you know like like thinking of commodity fetishism the marxist idea that like you know products the price of a product is not um like representative of its labor it 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 hides all the labor that went into it it conceals that and i think the leisure products here as depicted in the film at least do the same thing Hmm. interesting um did you want to take the the last one on uh from Hmm. uh, university of nebraska sure so so this this was um in a journal called teaching sociology and and it's an interesting review because it's something I deal a lot with in my work, um, where it's a, an, an educational review. Like these are reviews made by faculty members, like who are specifically addressing their like pedagogical utility. Um, so, so, you know, often they can be frustrating because like, like I just got a review today from one of our films, that uh, addresses like the Freddie Gray murder in Baltimore. And they were talking about like uh, the films called lights of Baltimore uh, coming in canopy soon. Uh, um, The it it's the, the review is talking about how the film includes police perspectives as well as community perspectives, but doesn't explicitly like call out how, what the police are saying is like factually inaccurate and destructive. And I'm like, well, but as a viewer, you're able to surmise that, right? You're able to call them on that. You don't need the film to do that for you necessarily, right? But but it, it seems like in in classroom uh, use thought, like people people want didacticism, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, so so in this review, he's talking about how it's a sociological disappointment, <laughs> and he says that he's not. It just doesn't give him what he wants, which is a portrait of the community of this town and how it, you know, operates essentially like, like straight sociology. Right. Um, which recalled for me, um, something Errol Morris said in the MoMA monograph, uh, which, you know, could be a direct response to this. Uh, but there he, he says, Fred is an anti-sociologist he says, Fred likes institutions like Fellini likes the circus. They're a backdrop or metaphor for something else. Rather, he th- uh, And then he goes on and says he thinks of Fred like an entomologist watching termites scurry around, saying, what are they doing? Can we ever know? And <laughs> so, I mean, yeah. That's super interesting. I mean, I, I think that, one, that is just like a, a better way of framing his work than institutional critiques because stuff like 
stuff like welfare, it's sure there's a critique, but like, or, or high school too, but like, it's broader than that. And, and, yeah. and especially as it goes on, there's, there's gray areas and, and he is just kind of like using it as a, as a tool or backdrop, but, um, just like, you know, the questions, can we even know what they're doing? You know, I guess you could, you could say if, as a professor trying to teach students, you know, that's not, maybe not a helpful thing, uh, <laughs> to be spending classroom time on. I mean, I think, I think it's, it's like, just philosophically interesting and i think it's more rewarding for documentary viewers uh than being told you know this is aspen these are the people here this is what they do and how they do it um but so so you know i i, I just i don't think we've come across these sort of educational reviews there's, i uh, think like there's one before, coming but, uh for yeah. zoo as well from from u of nebraska okay um, but yeah. Uh, sorry, the other thing I was going to say, did Errol Moore say something about how they're like ants scurrying around? Ter- termites. Termites. Yeah. I was going to, I had something in my notes about, uh, while watching this, about how at times the skiers are shot like ants far from Totally. Above. These like little dots just like moving around the lodge and, and on the mountain and stuff. Which I guess again speaks to like the spiritual aspect of this. Like, like the, the sermon at the end is like kind of, you know, how can you not, uh, you know, think about these sort of grand religious ideas in this, you know, grand setting of like mountains and sunsets and stuff. And, um, (laughs) but here, here they are, you know, what's so grand about it? Ultimately you're a bunch of ants falling down a hill. Right. On, on Twitter, Arlen, I think you were making this point by using side by sides, but calling attention to this juxtaposition of the monks who are together, which we can talk about the monks, but, and shot in a line and then like the shots of the ski lift pods, which are just yeah, like yeah. by their nature, isolating, even though right. they're together. Um, and in the monastery, you know, which the film opens on this monastery, just as we saw in a scene, there appears to be like a, a conscientious attempt at, at creating community based on fellowship and presumably equity. Um, and in the lift pods, you know, which are just built to assist the people skiing, who are of means are just like these closed off uh, pods of, of people in lines. Um, one of one of many uh, ways he's using visual visual metaphor in the film, but I th- I mean I like that. And this is pro- this is not something you know. This is for like the Wiseman heads only ty- type of comment <laughs> of like it's starting out with a scene. I mean I think I can do the same thing for anybody who's thinking critically about this. But opening with the monastery for me is like immediately making me think about community and how community mm. works because mm-hmm. that's what that film is to me. It's, it's um, totally. trying, trying to create a community in this like closed off place and the ways that they're thwarted and the ways that they're successful. Um, and so just kind of like this intro of being like, okay, now I'm going to go into Aspen and think about how community works in this very strange uh, town that is um, has a very stark uh, class stratification. Yeah, I mean, well, but before, just to go back to briefly uh, the the pods. You know, if if there was one thing I was hoping coming into this film that that we didn't get is is like a mana kamana type scene, just like going up. Well, it's just it's just going up 
in a ski lift, okay. you know, and From like the poster, e- existing inside, you know, for the duration of, of the ride, you know, so I, I would have liked to see, you know, some conversations happening uh, inside of one of those lifts. It'd be hard to fit the whole crew in there, I guess. <laughs> I, I guess so, yeah, they're a little, a little cramped. Although they got in a hot air balloon. Yeah, that looked super cramped. That was crazy. I can't believe they let them do. I, hey, but back back to the the anniversary thing. Like like, what a treat for that couple. I mean, <laughs> if if they're still together, I don't know. <laughs> I didn't think about that. That's so funny though. Um, yeah, the the hot air balloon. We talk about it with Scott, but uh, it, it's so funny because it has this super loud interruptions with the hot air. It's like this, you know, this, this it's very, like a it's like a trucker pulling the horn like every now and then she yeah. just like cranks on the torch like yeah uh, which but, it, it made me think of the wedding scene in the previous film in Central Park that's just being interrupted at all times by this loud plane going overhead right um Ben Sachs has an interesting line about the the um this like opening um and he's talking about uh so Ben Sachs is is writing for the Chicago Reader, and he programmed uh, him and his wife programmed Wiseman Films. I think in 2015 for Chicago Film Society, um, which uh, I believe uh, Eric Marsh and Al- Alex Sherman both were present for. Um, but uh, Ben Sachs was writing in the Chicago Reader at at that time about this piece, and as you mentioned, we both uh, really liked this. But um, he talks about how uh, American society, how Aspen is the American society at the dawn of the first Bush administration and the subject of a then current cinematic wave that includes Cold in July, Foxcatcher, It Follows, Red Army, White mm, Bird right, in, a, yeah. in a Blizzard, The Wolf of Wall Street, and the low-budget comedy Elf for Leisure. And he says the film portray these films portray the late 80s and early 90s as a time of innocence unprotected back when the U.S. still had a semblance of a working class and the Internet had yet to colonize the popular culture. Aspen suggests that by 1990, great change was already taking place and the results weren't looking good. Yeah, I mean, well, um, before before we get too into this interview or review, rather, I think this is all s- bringing to me God in the global economy scene. Oh, like, yeah. you know, which is just trying to marry these two distinct ideas of like community and the type of leisure we see in the film. How does a Christian approach economic life in general? What are the principles? We've seen some here, we've seen these two equations, but um, if one turns to the book of Romans in the New Testament and looks at chapter 12 and verse two, it says a very remarkable thing. It says, don't be conformed anymore to the image or the pattern of this world, but rather be transformed. And how should you be transformed? By the renewing of your mind. And what I'd like to do this evening is to ask the question, what does it mean to have a renewed mind? And how do we apply that renewed mind to the economy? And he's strive. This is like part six of like his lecture series or something. And he's just not able to get there because these two ideas are just so incompatible i think trying to shoehorn yeah uh trying to shoehorn like uh daily life into their spiritual life and it's just not 
Well, as just just like the the Bible study scene with all the divorced men, you know, like like trying to find some kind of like scriptural basis for what you know, real like, life application. Just like, yeah. yeah, isn't isn't what you're doing isn't it? You know, like like you're trying trying to justify these things. So I mean, I think the monastery is so important because it 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 sets up this dichotomy. And I think that whole sequence, like we talked about this kind of speed run, a scene to meet to central park to Aspen, it situates Aspen within this, like what, what are, I mean, we, we could have, I don't know what would have been brought from canal zone, but like, what are the cornerstones of America? It's like, you know, Jesus and beef. Right. And like Aspen is being situated within that milieu. It's not distinct from it. It's not separate from it. It's not this celebrity playground uh, that the LA Times reviewer Chris Woman was was mm-hmm. you know disappointed he wasn't seen. Right. It it is a part of uh, the America that we all know to exist and and like uh, you know it's a weird part of it, but um, it's no no less enmeshed with all of you know these sort of fundamentally like american elements than you know any other uh film has been yeah uh i just keep thinking about how uh like that you're talking about the god and the economy which is just such a strange thing super bizarre to see like and and davy you know like kind of zooms in on on the um the projector, which has this so diagram, and, and it's just kind of like, what am I reading? And uh, thinking about uh, that and the the painting scene um, as you're talking, and I think Scott says something about like staring into the eyes of like hell or something. But um, I just kept <laughs> I kept thinking about like just st- staring into this like chasm uh, while watching it of just like nothingness, like it really is like, even as like cliche as that sounds like that, it really is just kind of like, there's nothing going on here. Um, <laughs> and that scene uh, with the like coked up uh, uh, yeah, yeah. artist and he, he, God, he has that, well, uh, he has that great line about, <laughs> about how Victoria is the only blonde. I know that acts like she has palsy <laughs> with her hand. I mean, this thing is moving so fast. <laughs> She could have done the Sistine Chapel in 24 hours, no problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's he's feeling himself for sure. <laughs> but like, as has there ever been as like mean a cut as the first painting we get? Because oh my God. we we see we see like this this instructor's going off for like minutes and minutes, just like word vomit, just talking about nothing, talking about le- negative space. You know, we're we're seeing that there are artists painting, but we're only we can only see the back of their canvases. We can't see any mm-hmm. of their work. And then yeah, uh, Davy whips around and cut, and uh, you know the first painting is just like you know a five year old's crayon drawing, <laughs> essentially. Like, you know? It's crayon like, smudge. Like, it's just like, like it's so funny because he's like, "This is a Spanish, Spanish. fucking painting." Like, like, <laughs> it's just. Um, like, yeah, he doesn't he doesn't care what it is. He's just like trying to make him feel good, you know. It's like 
And and it, the the camera, they're so mobile. Like he's moving around the room, this instructor guy, and yeah. and they're going with him. You know, they're just following him around, and it it creates this kind of like just like frantic, dizzying sensation uh, watching it. Um, and then it's like all for what you know and and then and it underscores right it's like you can be fooled in the beginning okay art class artists you know like but this is clearly just like a leisure thing for rich people who who i think a thing a theme throughout the film have no sense of taste or or, uh whatsoever i mean it's not even like if their taste is good or bad they have no ideology like they're trying to buy an ideology yeah it's spirit the spiritual emptiness thing and i mean the that that god in the global economy scene i i believe concludes with a line something like without an eternal perspective everything is is meaningless yeah right Mm -hmm. and and here we are like clearly none of these people have <laughs> have perspective because right. of what were their painting but let alone an eternal perspective right uh, uh there is no meaning uh, to be found in any of these activities there's just like a searching and a yearning and a wanting and and a recognition of a lack that that just can't be you know addressed um uh-huh. yeah so so I don't know. I mean, it's a very funny scene. It's like one of my favorite Weissman scenes. It's, it's like so good. pure pure comedy, uh, but it it does even even a scene like that has like you know this dark edge and and importance to like the the meaning of the film. Who's the artist that they're arguing about? Like they're trying to like come to a consensus about like Matisse. During- Matisse, they they say something like Matisse can afford this birdcage, <laughs> right? But like then that. they're talking about like how Matisse was in his fifties. Oh, in the hospital, they brought him oil paints in and his, a canvas. In his, I gotta show you something. He had appendicitis. Oh, yeah. No, he had a, you know, no, Matisse uh, died of a bad operation on his gut. He didn't have appendicitis. No, but I mean, when he started painting. Oh, yeah. They brought oh, yeah. him painting so he wouldn't be bored in the oh, yeah. hospital. And he had a he had never with a painted in his whole life. And he did all of his cutouts on the ceiling of his bedroom. Really? Oh, shit, the oh, guy was gone. I knew him well. My cat's name is Ooh, look at this. Ooh, la, la. And it's just like this, like, just kind of like uh, hollow conversation where it's like whoever's the loudest is kind of like they're setting the the rules for, for what they're going to be talking about. And they're just kind of there to have, have this this party. But um it's it's a it's a drinking paint right like yeah, everyone's got wine right, glasses right. you know it's it's not about what you're making it's about an act doing an activity i mm-hmm. guess you know having a little wine having a little socializing and just getting a bunch of smoke blown up your ass right right guy. it's interesting um we kind of like talked about this earlier on but it, as far as like what you would expect from aspen and um, Mamber makes note in his diary of the absence of the sort of thing that, that we might expect from, from, uh, something called Aspen. Like there's no municipal meetings. Like, there is no tennis, yeah. tennis courthouse scene. And instead, mm-hmm. all the meetings are these private groups like the painting that are mostly just like social or religious groups. Yeah, no, that that's true. Um, and it's, it's a choice, right? Mm-hmm. Like the, the, I think the strongest reference we get to any sort of like civic or like municipal life is just that um, the escaping my name, but the husband in the anniversary is like a volunteer firefighter clappers. Um, and he, the clappers, thank you. And, and he was instrumental in bringing water to 
Aspen uh, in some ha- some way. Maybe I got that from the obituary. <laughs> uh, <laughs> which, which yeah, we looked we looked up his obituary. Uh, oh, a sad a sad note from that is is the wife died like the next year. Oh man. Um, yeah. Um, but we t- yeah, we should talk about yeah. that scene. But yeah. go ahead. Well, I was just the something we haven't talked about that I I started to talk about when we we were talking with. Scott, um, but I want to go a little more in depth into is there are two elements uh, in this guy's house that are key. One is the African sculpture that mm-hmm. he can't help but grow. Fondos, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and the other are the Warhol Maus that he draws everyone's attention to very inconspicuously. Um, but this notion of a theme throughout the film of assimilation of cultural conquest Mm -hmm. and acquiescence to like white Americanism. Mm -hmm. Um, We see it in those elements. We see it, of course, in the ESL scene and of course in the plastic surgery (laughs) scene, there's like a literal, you know, like they're talking about ethnic noses. They're talking about, you know, very common uh, in uh, non-Caucasians. Blacks have extremely receding chips and, and so we're able to build up that chin um, and, uh, you know, just to get a little better profile line. Um, now, um, we see, again, in, in non-Caucasians, Orientals, where we're, we're able to build up the chin for, for better harmony and facial balance. And in this case, we also used a, what's called a mid-facial implant, um, where you see that, that um, as a result of the mid-facial implant, the center portion of the face is advanced as well. Um, um, okay, commonly in Orientals, you see that significant depression just below the cheekbone on the left and the, and the filler with a mid-facial implant on the right. Um, cheekbones. Uh, cheekbones are extremely important. And uh, I mean, if you, you show me a beautiful woman, I'll show you beautiful cheekbones. Like, and just how they're wrong, you know, yeah, like yeah. How, how they're not good. And this is what's good. And then it's, you know, always just, you know, the what the white beauty standards um so i mean there it it's a sinister thing in aspen i think too that's being there's also like uh, that little party on the on the ski slope with like the the tribe the like the the yeah hula or some kind of indigenous you know Mm -hmm. no no real uh uh yeah it's it is insulting to to uh, it reminded me of the, sure. the Reading Rainbow scene in Central Park where, where like the, yeah, yeah. the African group is, is dancing to tribal music to represent their own cultural heritage. Right. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But it, this, you know, cultural signification uh, is present only so much as it serves the whims of, you know, the leisure class in Aspen, right? It, it doesn't seem... And, and you know, that ESL scene is so, so key. Oh, yeah. Where the, the Chilean is talking about, you know... Juan. Me, me, yeah, thank you. You know everyone's name. <laughs> um, talking about, like... You have to remember, Alberto, where these people's coming from. Some of them, they didn't even have shoes when they were born. Mm-hmm. Some of them, they don't have education. You know better than anybody. They come to ESL and they don't know how to read or write. I mean, if if they get a truck, man, they already got it made. They got wheels. They can go back to Mexico and sell the, the truck. And they can come back here and they can make more. Just coming up here, they kind of have it made. 
when you when people that has come up here and then they go back down there everybody looks at them like wow you know where you've been you know you're now you're different you know and it's 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 not it's not true you know we know it's not true they're not different than anybody else but just uh, just uh, the accomplishment of uh, reaching to primordial needs becomes the individual becomes like self-confident of himself that like they are someone you know like they have something you know and, and like you say nobody owns a house but they all live in trailers I would like to say that doesn't matter if we came from a um, foreign country if we really want to success here we don't forget our nationality or anything I don't and I won't ever I try to mix my uh, education with the Anglo education because for us we need to make adjustments to both and try to live with those up and downs we cannot go so far to one or the other one but then we get in trouble um, but but there there is no room for variance unless you're like a british dude i guess right <laughs> a lot of a lot of british guys but but i think i think that's something that you know we were talking uh again uh in our dms just like something that wasn't really hitting us the first time we watched it because it's so fun and kooky and uh-huh. ridiculous um but it's so present throughout that on the second viewing like it 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 you can't ignore it i think i think you know yeah Weiss- weissman is making a point about these kind of racial and ethnic issues yeah and there's a few key cuts that he includes but i while we before we move from the esl class too far but um there is that that uh remark from the new york times interview um where wiseman says uh uh a hispanic man remarks that after 13 years he still lives in a trailer the remark easily overlooked is a subtle hint that minorities have an unequal role in town and asked, asked if such a scene wouldn't be more hard-hitting with commentary, Mr. Wiseman replies, from my point of view, the scene succeeds if people come away with the idea that there's a housing problem, that a lot of minorities in Aspen feel excluded. Just given that suggestion, the audience thinks, where are the minorities in Aspen? What functions do they serve? And zooming out, Wiseman is obviously using this group in conversation with those at the ski resort, which he then conveniently cuts to uh immediately from this um but yeah it's a it's a great scene because there's a tension there um between two people who are very different while also being within the same group like represented here um and uh yeah alberto just kind of pushing back and and talking about the need to to um preserve culture and uh, you know, preserve this fun in business that Juan just can't get over. Um, yeah. That that we don't have in America, but um, and I mean, you know, I, I don't want to go too into it, but I mean, there is uh inherent kind of um suspiciousness about like a white Chilean extolling yeah. the virtues of America, right, you know, right. <laughs> especially one of his age, um. Uh, you can make some inferences about how his family might have ended up here. And um, Alberto uh, talks about how nobody he knows owns a home. You know, they all live in trailer parks, which we get like some pretty key yeah, shots yeah. of trailer parks and 
um, in sort of like the more rundown parts of town. It kind of reminds me of some of the the vacillation vacillations between shots in the Deaf and Blind. Uh, totally mm-hmm. uh films but yeah which you know in, in those films communicates so much about uh talladega because like we don't get a ton of talladega you know here we get much more of aspen but even so it's not the like we were saying the civic municipal sort of mm-hmm. uh, portraits that will we will get in in the later community films um they they do have to kind of or Weissman rather is is gesturing towards you know all these socioeconomic realities without like being so overt about it and directly addressing them. But but they're they're there and they're possible to ignore. And again, like this whole idea of like, well, why isn't there more kind of backstage stuff in the yeah. film? Is like, well, that the same reason Weissman is asking that question is what are the role of minorities in Aspen? Uh, you know, I think, I think as much as said about their relative absence in the film, aside from the notable examples we're mentioning, um, and you know, he'll, he'll find, he finds early on like a black skier and he hangs on him for like a, a decent amount of time, just, I think to, to kind of draw us to their absence elsewhere in the film of, of oh, black sure. people, and- you know, like, so, so yeah. And Scott talks uh, very eloquently about the end sermon um, in our interview. And he frames it in a way that I really appreciate. Um, uh, One of the shots in there, actually two of the shots, um, while this sermon, while this pastor's talking about like um, class stratification, I guess. um, But he's talking about like kind of, did you realize that? In the inner city of Denver this morning, Jim Cessna will be preaching the gospel to a group of people at Neighborhood Church. They won't, there won't be many white faces there. They're in a whole different world than we are. They have a couple of men who stand at the door to make sure no one brings a weapon into church. They also stand at the door to keep an eye on the parking lot and keep the cars from being bashed in and destroyed. They'd never think of doing what I did this morning, which was parking a vehicle with a pair of skis sitting in the boot. They'd never think of that. And then, like, right after that, cuts to a black woman that's sitting there in the audience. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. And it's right. just like, it really does stick out because of, uh, you know, the the disparity that we've seen. Um, and even him, in that room with, you know, black congregants, he still has this impression, right? right. right? And he, he, feels, he feels comfortable saying that mm-hmm. because, you know, the mental map of Aspen is, right. is you know, uniform. Um, and that, that, you know, brings up an important, uh, scene back to the clappers, um, the, uh, 40th anniversary scene, which I think I I mentioned, um, I think maybe in, in Letterboxd that like, um, that there's so many scenes that feel like centerpieces here, but I think the clappers Mm. is really kind of the one that kind of sticks out as, as like sort of the it's too cliche to say like the beating heart of it, but there's something mm. about it that particularly resonates. And that um, I, th- I think it's the only instance of like real joy, you know, like, like mm-hmm. I think again, the searching thing, I think maybe we see yeah. people having fun, people enjoying themselves, like but like, kind this of is found, the only, yeah, this is, this is what, yeah, like the spiritual, fulfillment you know filling that lack looks like is like in in this scene yeah for sure um and they're very blue collar and and we talk about this with scott but um 
I did want to mention, I, there's still complications within this scene. And I asked you this yeah. offline. And, and so I don't know if this is just me like speculating because I mean, this is the beauty of Wiseman's films is that like you, you're left to speculate, but um, you know, it's this toast and it opens on this beautiful uh, stuff with like the uh, a champagne toast with plastic glasses. It's just like, <laughs> it's so good. Um, yeah. It's a great, great don't, visual. Don't they call it joy juice? Actually, something like think that. About it, yeah, but yeah, yeah. it's great that that Davy really honed in on on the, the glassware. Um, but uh, yeah, then they're kind of like going around to all of the kids, and they're giving their toasts, and they're interesting, and they're not like super emotional or anything like that. There's there's a level of camaraderie that kind of like brings it uh, through. But um, there's a younger son who is talking about growing up with this family my mother and i were very close we were best friends for a long time and it took my father and i a lot of years to become best friends and i was very happy when we finally became best friends and i hope that my daughter and my wife become best friends with this family too sooner or later and thank you very much and i love you both and i had to wonder if he was queer or not or like closeted Mm -hmm. um he has a child and a like he has a uh like a um i I think he has a wife and a child at least one child and he's talking about like how it took him a long time to be best friends with his dad but he is like always best friends with his mom yada yada and whether he is or not there's a there's a lack of masculinity present with him i thought that there was in Hmm. in the other um two sons i believe um and davy zooms out and the camera just sort of like lingers on him and and he doesn't seem to be as integrated into the family um like he's a bit a bit of an outsider it looked like from the shot at least it suggests that and um i don't know there's it's interesting and then it cuts to or he like pans over to this uh this man um this person of color, him and his wife, I, I believe, um, who are talking. Da- his daughter's there too. Okay, and yeah. and it's hard to tell whether he is. Uh, it, it's hard to tell what his heritage is. Um, although it would be interesting to know, because one of the sons makes a um, <laughs> a really weird yeah. uh, toast. He's about, quoting the dad. Yeah, yeah but yeah. like he opens this toast by saying like. I'm going to tell you this story and hopefully, you know, it'll apply to your, your own lives or something like that. And the whole thing is just that. And we were talking about our roots and mom goes, well, I think I'm a little Italian and mostly Indian. <laughs> Dad looked across the table and goes, Indian? Indian, all right. A wapaho. <laughs> and it's just this very strange... It's one of those things where, like, it's complicated, but also, like, there's a beauty in, like, the the realness. Like, there's no pointed, this isn't written dialogue. And there's something that feels captured about this that still adds. Like, you know, in, a, in like, a novel or, or fiction, that would be something that, that would be a line of dialogue that wouldn't be just, like, a detail, this like mm-hmm. detail that means more to them, like this story about their parent that conveys their parents' relationship, like it means something. They're all laughing, 
and I'm, mm-hmm. I'm sure it like resonates because they know their relationship but to yeah. us like we're outsiders <laughs> and we pick up on, you know we have to pick up on this and it's not like it's not spoon feeding the importance of this weird speech to us if that makes sense yeah no i think i think that's that's really interesting uh way to think about it um because yeah the the meaning is different it hits different i guess as as a family member right where you could you could get a sense of of their relationship like you're saying um i think too that that story is another instance of assimilation talking about maybe generationally the indigenous uh community being subsumed into whiteness all you know this very white uh appearing family um but but you know i it it's interesting as sort of distasteful as it is it it, it does have this like endearing yeah um, to it like yeah. you know right like like because you know we we are interlopers in this scene you know through fred's camera or davy's camera um but like this is you know for lack of a better word like a safe space they all know each other they're all Mm -hmm. family Mm -hmm. you know there's there's nobody's gonna grind grind your gears for uh uh, saying the wrong thing um and then how does the scene end (laughs) too right the all the all the children uh the products of this marriage sucking on helium oh yeah doing (laughs) this doing this silly little song uh that's very cute um, but just like a, another instance of kind of like, just like pure joy, uh, family camaraderie, yeah. you know, like, like it, it is not necessary to in, in searching and seeking and trying to fill that Like It is not necessary to do all of the things that we see, uh, throughout the film. I mean, how much f- family, you know, full stop, do we really get? I mean, in, in fact, we get in the Bible study scene, it's, it's, divorced men yeah yeah it seems like predominantly yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. <laughs> or or people like not in happy marriages but like like in all of the searching leisure class people uh family doesn't seem to be yeah. super present you know uh, and maybe that's something weissman is is mm-hmm. sort of getting at here uh is is the central role of family and i, I think the scene's pretty well i got located i, I was gonna film. say that too yeah, yeah it comes pretty much in the in the middle but i got yeah. sidetracked and talking about how touching it is that this this man um who is not part of the family is talking about how even though yeah. he is not part of the family he has been treated like part of the family and it's interesting also that he's not white um right. given the the milieu of this um yeah yeah thank <clears throat> thank you for mentioning that but yeah, I, um, I, forgot. I wanted to to uh call out um some more stuff from ben Sachs' chicago reader piece on this he he because yeah. he talks about um sort of the context of this this scene um in a way that i uh also really appreciated when i watched it but he says the the decor is also notably modest the tile mm-hmm. floors and fake wood paneling both seem to be about a generation old, and the fluorescent lighting is unflattering. Yet even these details convey a certain authenticity. Call it the wear and tear of communal use, which I really like that idea of communal use that they're in. Um, and we talked about that with with uh, Scott. But um, Sex also mentions that one of the speeches mentions how much the family means to the whole town of Aspen and how that's a rare mention of civic responsibility in the film right 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 and and i i had it wrong it wasn't water it was natural gas uh the clapper was instrumental to bringing to the town but yeah there there is no sense of 
you know, say like we get in Monrovia of like, what can we do for Aspen? You know, who, who are we as Aspenites and like, what, what do we, what do we bring to the table in forming this town's identity? Mm -hmm. You know, like, Mm -hmm. like it, it, to borrow, I think your term, like, like it, it's more of a way station than a community almost in every other scene except for this one, you know, Mm -hmm. like, and, and I think that's really sharp. uh, What Ben Sachs was saying about, um the the decor uh and the use um like like when you see something that's new and pristine it implies that uh some some sort of lack of engagement i think right like like uh and not to say that the rest of the film is like very uh shiny and new um you know i mean think about all, all the times the ski lifts have been used but um they're you know we people in people's residences you know they look pretty sleek and modern and mm-hmm. expensive you know <laughs> and i mean to the point again where he's he's uh, the owners are drawing our attention to the collection of Warhol Mao's, you know? So, so there's a, a thing there about, um, what wealth and leisure and spiritual lack, uh, as depicted through the settings, uh, we get, uh, and, and this is all contrasting with that. And the, the, I mean, there are scenes of like community, like, in the um, men's divorce scene or like the Flaubert scene, but it's a, it doesn't feel, I mean, I don't know. You don't come away thinking that, that this is a a healthy community at times. I mean, there's interesting discussion. I think that there's fruitful discussion, but that doesn't seem to, to um, be like one part of this greater whole. Um, Yeah. I mean, it's, it's super individualistic, I guess. Right. Exactly. And that's exactly what the Flaubert scene is all about is is like right. <clears throat> the worth of a single person and if they are able to do anything or not and if you know or you know whatever that means to these people um and it's pretty brilliant use by Wiseman to <clears throat> to know pick up on this story and the class implications of it of this class of people talking about it and right. reflecting their own reflecting the larger community um and this individualistic um ethos uh which also sex has a really good line about this scene that that kind of like sums up a larger part and then i'll stop quoting him um (laughs) but uh he says uh the flaubert scene is one of the most concise critiques in american movies of the reagan era with this carefully selected comment wiseman suggests that the utilitarian thinking of reaganomics did not just decimate our country's manufacturing industry but carried dark spiritual consequences as well cutting into its supporters ability to emphasize with others mitt romney in his presidential campaign speeches demonstrated that this way of thinking remains powerful in american politics of course that's been phased out in the last eight years <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I had that quoted and highlighted as well. Um, I mean, it it's, uh, you know, uh, clearly everyone talking about this fictional character is is of a class separate from this character Felicity, they're all yeah. discussing. You know, Felicity. Yeah. Did Did you end up reading this one? The, uh, I read uh, like half of it. I didn't get through all of it, but um, but I mean, like uh, they they kind of sum it up pretty. It, it, it's it's it reminded me of Dogville, 
Um, I mean, I mean, oh, it's God. different. It's different, <laughs> yeah. but, but um, uh, like this this trajectory that is, yeah, yeah. is very determined. You know, it, it's um, of this woman who is uh, everything that she gets close with is kind of like taken taken from her one by one, and she's just kind of of service. But anyway, yeah. But I guess I guess speaking about it in relationship to the Clapper anniversary scene, you know, this is another kind of like safe space you know where everybody is of the same sort of class and relatively similar ideologies and i mean there are some people in the group who are who are pushing back Mm -hmm. against that one guy's like just like kind of bigotry and hatred (laughs) for the poor Uh, um, uh, um but like by and large you know um you know these these this is like you, you could get a sense of them saying to each other, you know what I mean, right? Like, uh, because mm-hmm. they do know, because they share experiences with each other, but not with this character in right, the story. Right. Um, so we should mention that um, uh, this is mentioned a bit in Barry Keith Grant's book, which is uh, uh, about to be released. Um in sure. probably like by the time this episode comes out a few days away um exciting yeah from columbia university press i believe um and, uh, yeah go ahead and uh yes the 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 revised um version of uh an expanded version of voyages of discovery he should have called it voyages of discovery too just to be on brand <laughs> um but <laughs> But yeah, yeah. Wallflower Press is an imprint of Columbia University Press. Gotcha. And um, he doesn't write at length about Aspen at all, but he does group it in with the chapter on a scene in Deaf and Blind, which we talked about during those uh, episodes. And Which is, is so interesting because you expect that to, to be grouped with you know, Belfast and right. Monrovia and Jackson Heights. Um, I I remember when, when I saw the credits, you know, I, I, I screenshot and DM'd you. I was like, this is like, I'm so excited for this book, you know, BKG sicko mode. (laughs) Aspen is, you know, the spiritual examination, which I mean, you know, yeah, of course it makes sense uh, given everything we've been discussing here. Um, But, but the thing he says about it, um, why it's here is because the film focuses on the, on the tension between the material and the spiritual, um, which, you know, we've, we've been pretty much discussing at length. Um, but as we kind of talked about relationships uh, between the subject matter and the community in the deaf and blind series, um, and of course, community and spirituality in a scene, uh, it, yeah, I, I can't make an argument that, that it shouldn't go here. It would have been funny if he was like, because there's a blind skier in. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but, you know, I, I, it's, it's, I haven't. Um, delved into the the new edition uh, too deeply, I should say. We we were are the beneficiaries of some advanced copies. Uh, I'm holding it in my hands now, um, but the it it just having engaged with it only for these last two films, Aspen and Central Park. It seems like for some of the films they're getting kind of tacked on a little bit, 
Um, but I'm, I'm looking forward into getting into the, the new of the, uh, new and expanded or, uh, edition or revised rather. Yeah. Yeah. Um, or the expanded rather of revised and expanded. Um, because you know, I, I'm, I'm, I want to see what he thinks about, you know, past God, 30 years of filmmaking. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's crazy. (laughs) It's crazy (laughs) how much, uh, Weissman we have to get, get to, even still, uh, and and very happy to have uh, Grant helping uh, guide us along the way again. Well, speaking of being beneficiaries of a, uh, a copy of the book, uh, sure. Um, we should say that uh, we're going to be giving out um, some copies of the book very slowly, uh, and uh, to people within the uh, uh, what is it contiguous. Or the continental U.S. Uh, <laughs> hey, not Alaska, Hawaii, you could get in the mix too. <laughs> um, just for shipping reasons, but um, uh, so we're gonna give one trivia question this episode, and the first person to uh, email Wiseman Podcast at Gmail um, with that right answer. Uh, we'll get uh, one copy and then we'll do that again over the next few episodes. But um, uh, Arlen, do you have the trivia question? Yeah, uh, I do. But so, so this really uh, rewards, you know, the Weissman <laughs> podcast diehards that downloaded it and listen in the day it drops. Um, thank you for your d- d- dedication. That's right. Um, but so, yeah, so, so early on in this film, uh, you know, as in so many Weissman films, we get we get a number of shots of people shooting film, you know, fil- filming activities, um, a favorite subject for Fred. And uh, there's one camera pretty early on. It might be the first one we see, um, but it's a guy sitting at the side of a race, standing rather, uh, and he's got this big, chunky bulky yellow walkman looking camera like uh um can't miss it i want you can't miss it uh i i the question i can't say what it's called because the question is what is the make and model of this camera um and i think you know if you Google the description I just gave, you'll probably <laughs> find say. it pretty soon. <laughs> but you had to have listened <laughs> yeah. all the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But important. but yeah, you have to you have to get to this point, and you got to be first. Um, so show show your true colors, your yellow uh, camcorder prosumer colors, uh, by telling us the make and model of that camera uh, in an email. And uh, if you're the first, we'll ask for your address, and you'll get a. Uh, copy of voyages of discovery the cinema of frederick weissman revised and expanded edition by barry keith grant that's right um anything else um well we we didn't talk about a couple do you want to get to uh just briefly this screen slate review uh by by joshua bogatin i didn't think there's a whole lot there but go for it there wasn't a whole there wasn't a whole lot there but i did it did seem to me kind of distinctly modern view and talking about absurdities and contradictions which i think is something like you and i talk a lot about and and i think people generally talk about with weissman's new films but wasn't talked about a lot 
at the time right, by critics, sure. you know, uh, and that that just kind of struck me as as interesting to note the that looking back, these sort of mm-hmm. uh, more modern perspectives are being applied. Right, that's interesting. Um, and then the not coming, I guess. And then the not coming, yeah. You know, I I I don't <laughs> want to really go in <laughs> on uh, Catherine Follett here. <laughs> Um, but si- similar to the, they're going to dox her, but uh... <laughs> similar to the LA times piece, it's just a case of like, you know, rule one with watching Weissman is just like, be open. You can't bring expectations to the table. It's going to ruin things. And, and it seemed like she talked about growing up in a ski town, you know, and having certain experiences and knowing like certain, uh, people who were parts of different social strata and uh, knowing people who worked at the resorts and things like that that are not present in this film and basically because they aren't present she she cites that as a lack yeah well, uh, he, she wants it to be a different film and that's right. not what it is yeah yeah so so i mean I, I guess we don't really need to to talk about it too much more than that um but you know just just not the way to go about <laughs> Things. Yeah, disappointing because some of these not coming pieces have been uh, quite good. So yeah, but there's I, more I to think, come. Yeah, the one the one thing that drove me crazy is she was saying just how boring it was. Yeah, you know? very strange. <laughs> like like you know, God in the global economy, the homeopathic oh, yeah. thing. Which you know, like... I like that Mamber talks about that. He says it's like the funniest scene in a Wiseman film. <laughs> it's so great. <laughs> He's just like touching his hand and be like, "Yeah, let's look at the intestines that balances those out. How about your heart? Balances out the heart. How about your endocrine system? And the important one, there was the hormone functions." There's our summation point hormones. Look at that. It comes right into 50. How about your specific hormones, your insulin hormone function? 50, it didn't come in quite as slow, but at least it's in good range. The one that we relate to FSH hormone. And this brand new hormone point we don't know about. Just what it measures, but that one's balanced. It's so weird we didn't really talk about it because, I mean, it's hard to talk about other than just describing it, but it goes on for 10 minutes. It's one of the longest scenes in the movie, and it's this very intimate um, scene of, like, after we get all these shots, like, going up to this house in the mountains or whatever, and and this guy just, like, taking this weird piece of machinery that's hooked up to a, uh, you know, a 1990 computer just like touching this guy and um, <laughs> making a funny noise with it. Yeah, and it, it, he keeps talking about how it's from Canada. And it's like technology from Canada. <laughs> it's it's just it takes you a second to kind of figure out what's going on. But um, I like that member was just like cackling at it. Yeah, I mean, I think it it speaks to you know an overall susceptibility to like hucksterism. You know, it's 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 definitely related to kind of the the like woo woo spiritualist um, group we Search got a little bit something. earlier. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And like, um, but you know, again, it's just an emptiness here that people with too much money will throw that money at whatever things might solve that, mm-hmm. you know, for sure. Um, 
Yeah, but the and then and then something she did note that I I thought was interesting I hadn't considered was that this is like just pre snowboarding, <laughs> <laughs> and and how like the types of people who would snowboard rather than ski would go on to kind of change the, yeah for the milieu, sure for sure uh, here a little bit uh, I hadn't thought of, I've I've never been skiing or snowboarding I mean yeah. I grew up done it know, like twice and in, in, in and around Chicago it's pretty flat. Uh, we, yeah. would, we would sled sled down a garbage heap called Mount Trashmore, and, and that's about it. Um, but but yeah, I I hadn't considered that, and thought that was that was an interesting. That is note. interesting. All right. Well, um, uh, we talk about um, a lot of these scenes and more uh, with Scott um, in what I thought was a very entertaining uh, chat, and um, he makes a lot of connections to, uh, between scenes that really enrich. Uh, my reading of the film so i hope you enjoy it yeah yeah get ready it's it's fast it's furious but it's good uh yeah and and uh, westman podcast at gmail.com did we say that yeah we did. We, did we did we did okay okay you have to know what the email address is to email us but <laughs> or that, if you're a real Weisman head you already know it um, yeah right yeah. It's, on your, it's in your contacts um all right <laughs> enjoy the chat Podcast. We're here with our guest, A.S. Hamra, um, who is the critic for Baffler Magazine, and uh, his work has appeared in numerous publications, including uh, N Plus One, Book Forum, and Harper's, and uh, of course, his book, uh, The Earth Dies Streaming, which is his collected film writing, uh, came out, uh, what, a couple years ago? It came out at the end of 2018. 2018. Wow, five years ago already. Yeah. Uh, well, how are you doing, Scott? I'm doing good. Thanks for joining us. Appreciate having you. Um, so I, we usually start by uh, just asking our guests, like, what is what? What's your general relationship to Fred Wiseman? Like, what was your introduction to his work? Well, I can't remember when I, you know, I I feel like I've known about Fred Wiseman my whole life, and I saw his films on television when I was uh, in high school. You know, on PBS, I, I, I come from New England and, um, you know, Fred Wiseman was just someone that one always knew about, hmm. not, not just because of Titty Cut Follies, which I think a lot of people first heard about him because of Titty Cut Follies. I knew about him because of his seventies documentaries that were shown, um, on TV. And there were film when I was in college in the eighties in Boston, there were often showings of his '70s films, especially *Hospital*, *High School*. Well, but all, all the films for the '80s really would be shown in film series at MIT and uh, the Harvard Film Archive and various other places around Boston. So you know, he was a local—he's like a local celebrity in New England in a way, <laughs> uh, as much as he is a national or international figure. Mm-hmm. 
And, you know, whenever Titty Cut Follies screened, it was always a big deal to people in whatever part of New England you were. I remember screening in, like, in Hartford when I was uh, in high school. It, it, you know, it was just, it was, he was just someone that one knew about. Hmm. Uh, so I, it's, it's hard to pinpoint when I first heard about him. It's like, when did you first hear about, like, Andy Warhol or someone? <laughs> He's just someone sure. that, you know, you always knew about, Yeah, you know? Did you ever get a chance to like see him talk at at those screenings? No, I never. I've never seen him speak in person. Actually, I've never met him either. Hmm. Um, yeah, I've only seen him on you know YouTube, or you know being interviewed on public television, or you know the new the na- you know the national news. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. But uh, you know, I've always known about him, and I remember going to see these kind of epic you know, screenings of his, of his seventies films, they, you know, they would be double features and they would go on for, you know, hours sometimes. Yeah. yeah. You know, back then, you know, I could, I could easily see a triple feature in a movie theater. So were you drawn to them at, at an early age? Like were, were these films that you were particularly interested in when you saw them or you just saw them because they were, they were part of the, the milieu? I saw them because I was interested in, you know, all movies. You know, I was interested in all aspects of cinema. I was interested in serious films. And, you know, I was interested in, in real documentaries. And, you, you know, you, in, my, in the introduction, you mentioned my writing and my book and my film criticism. But, you know, I'm a, you know I'm a, I produced a documentary film last year. Hmm. I'm a documentary film producer, too, now. I produced a film called Bunker that was directed by Jenny Perlin that opened Doc Fortnite at MoMA last year. Oh, that's right. About about the the decommissioned silo sort yes, of. Yes, it's about yeah, it's right. about men. Okay. It's yeah. about men in America who have decided to live in former military bunkers and decommissioned uh, nuclear missile silos. Yeah, no, I, I remember reading about that. I I, I want to see it, but I I mentioned on our our missile episode. There's um a short doc called uh, uh, Lost Paradise by Mark Nemchik uh, about. Uh, something very similar, like a multi-story subterranean dwelling of some kind that, you know, owned by some rich guy. Well, Jenny, Bunker is a feature film. It's 92 minutes long, and it's distributed by Grasshopper. Okay. Oh, cool. Sure. Who you probably heard of, you know. Mm-hmm. They, they do. Yeah. But it's also, it's available on Amazon now, too. Okay. So you can rent it or buy it on Amazon. And you can buy, you can watch it through Grasshopper's streaming service, which is called Projector TV. Right. Um, New York Public Library. Yeah. So, you know, I'm I'm a documentary film producer too now. And, you know, I'm sure that and you know, Wiseman part of what interested me about Jenny's films was that they are essentially made in the in the same kind of style, which is that they're you know, they're verite documentaries with very little, you know, presence. There is some presence in her case of the filmmaker, but not a lot. Mm-hmm. And they're, you know, they're straight verite presentations without a lot of, you know, a lot of a lot of the added bells and whistles that are coming to dominate documentary now in a way that's kind of deleterious to the form, I think. Right. Yeah. In fact, there was a there was an article in IndieWire a couple of weeks ago by a guy named Ben Welk, who's a you know business reporter there, talking about the pressures that documentarians face now in America. Yeah. And, and and essentially it was an article saying that, you know, all documentarians must conform to the aesthetics of Netflix now. And that's simply what documentary is. 
and that's the market, and we all have to agree that that's the truth of the market. And so it's a long piece. It doesn't mention Wiseman at all. You know, of course he's had <laughs> yeah. he's had films recently, but you know they don't exist in the in the in this in the mental landscape of business reporters who who write about things like Netflix, even though this is on IndieWire, which yeah. is supposed to be a you know sophisticated uh, you know place for film coverage. You know, it's it's part of the Penske Media Empire, and you know they don't they don't they don't care about anything real or necessary or good anymore. Would you say the Earth dies streaming? <laughs> the Earth dies streaming. Yeah, this was the one. I think they spent a, a considerable amount of time talking to like the the head of XTR. Was yeah. Was well, it? they mentioned XTR, of course, because you have to mention XTR and everything now, no matter what. <laughs> yeah, and um. I don't know if it's the same one because there's been a lot of coverage of XTR, yeah, uh, on IndieWire. But it's it's one that came out I think April 11th. Okay, oh, okay. and uh, you know the 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 idea of what a documentary is is completely degrading as documentary film production becomes part of the world of content and the world of entertainment. Yeah, and and what's good about Wiseman's films, and I hope what's good about Jenny's film Bunker that I produced, is that. They're not part of that. You know, they don't submit to that type of uh, regime of shallow image making that is purely sensationalistic. And in this in this article, you know, it's about how the, the, the thrust of the article was about how difficult it was to market the film Navalny. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't think it was difficult to market that. But when you compare it to a Netflix series like Dahmer, which is <laughs> what they do in the piece... Then there's this argument that, like, well, of course, everyone wants to see Dahmer. It's just this assumption that the writer of the article makes. Hmm, Everyone wants to see Dahmer. I don't think that's true. (laughs) And I I don't think that you should necessarily be comparing these two things. I don't think it's hard to market a film about Navalny. I think it's easier than marketing a Wiseman film. For sure. Sure. Yeah. But, you know, this is the kind of uh, atmosphere that documentary exists in now which is that it's completely debased and commercialized because of uh, you know, the streaming giants who are making miniseries. Yeah. The other point of the article was that you know, documentary as a form has to exist within the miniseries form now mm-hmm. because everything has to just be disposable television now. For sure. And films like, films like Wiseman's, of course, are the complete opposite of this in every way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the um, you know, especially thinking about using Navalny as an example, which was a CNN, HBO, like co-production, you know, coming in, played a ton of festivals and came in with that distribution, came in with that apparatus already behind it. So it's, it's not the sort of thing that, that even really needs to find an audience in the same way that Weissman, a new Weissman film and, and, uh, festival distribution, like in the theatrical circuit kind of, kind of has to, because it's, it's baked in, right? Uh, it's it's ready made on on television, I guess not entirely dissimilar from Fred's relation to PBS, but you know the the uh, sort of ideological underpinnings of the whole enterprise are completely distinct. Well, the main the main difference, I mean, they both have a relationship to television, to television production, and to making films for television. Of course, CNN is, you know, ad-supported cable television, and PBS is public television. So that's the first difference. Mm-hmm. But the, the bigger difference is that Navalny exists to win Oscars. Yeah. So, so once it's made and once it's shown on CNN or HBO, then it enters into this 
ancillary world of its Oscar campaign, which costs tens of thousands of dollars to mount now, the idea that, that producers are paying for Oscar campaigns for documentary films is ridiculous. For sure. But this is why Fred Wiseman's films don't have Oscars. <laughs> True. Right. You know, yeah. because no, no one's going to pay to campaign for them to get Academy voters to vote for them and for them to even be nominated in, in the way that a film like Navalny is. Right. Well, also the thing, too, is Navalny... Uh, and this is something that it's Oscar win plays into heavily, but it has this like utilitarian aspect for state narratives, right. For like what the U S is actively doing overseas. Uh, and to, you know, uh, I've, I haven't seen the film myself, but I, you know, I'm aware of sort of the gray area of, uh, what Navalny's doing or has done or is attempting to do in Russia. It's not, uh, as clear cut as just being the anti-Putin guy, but you know Weissman's films are never you know going to have that kind of utilitarianism for really anybody. You know the the ambiguity is is key. Yes, because Navalny is a soft power product, right? You know it it, it exists to promote you know U.S. policy abroad, right? And Weissman films aren't aren't doing that at all. <laughs> For sure. In any way. I mean, Wiseman is barely an American in, in a sense, you know, now. I, I mean, right. I, I see him as a New Englander, you know, and as an American. But, you know, in, in a sense, he's a, he's escaped that and he's kind of an exile in some ways now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and I, when I first interviewed him, he had mentioned, in fact, that his recent films have been uh, appearing on Chinese state TV uh, a good deal. Uh, thinking about you know what what sort of utilitarianism there is to propagate like official U.S. state narratives you know probably if if China's like hey you know what watch this interpretation of America you know it, it's probably not serving uh, the same masters um, but but you know we you you started to hit on something I wanted to ask you know because I'm I'm excited to talk to you. Um, among other reasons you're you're one of the only other film folk out there i've seen giving some considerable flowers to the film operation filmmaker oh yeah even nina davenport's film which i love and i think is a real like document documentary lovers documentary you know um uh but uh one thing in uh, the Earth Dies streaming, you know, your introduction, I think, is like such a incisive and uh, accurate take on just contemporary cinephilia, contemporary uh, film criticism and distribution and exhibition, you know, the whole kick caboodle, you know, you, you started to talk about it already, but it, it sounds like, you know, Weissman is separate from the things you're talking about, or maybe he's the last bastion of the pre-streaming dynamics, but how how do you see his films interplaying or not interplaying with the sort of precipitous demise of kind of everything you discuss in the opening of your book? Okay, I don't think that there's been a precipitous demise in in, in actual cinema. The the sure. precipitous demise is in the way that it's distributed and consumed by by you know the average viewer. Mm-hmm. So you know when you talk about um, the the reason that the reason that I wrote about Operation Filmmaker, the film by Nina Davenport, is because I wrote a piece uh, in two thousand and eight for N plus one in which I watched every film that had been made up to that point about the war on terror and the war in Iraq. And you know, Nina Davenport's film is 
is good because it's it's outside all 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 official narratives about the war. It focuses on one kid who's allowed to go to Hollywood to be a PA. He actually goes to Eastern Europe to be a PA on a movie that Lev Schreiber is directing. And you know, her her film is such it was a, it's such a struggle that film because the kid is so recalcitrant and such a pain in the ass. <laughs> You know, it's it's a great film that not a lot of people have seen, and I'm not even sure where you can see that movie now. But I, you know, the 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 20th anniversary of the war in Iraq just happened, and you know that was one of the films that I would still recommend from that piece. And mm-hmm. you know, Nina Davenport I think has been kind of absorbed by TV in some ways too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm not really sure what she's doing now. Um, I interviewed her years ago for a film that she made called Hello Photo. I don't know if sure, you've ever seen sure. that film. Yeah, the kind of India travelogue. Yes, that was she, an excellent she, movie. Yeah, she's got a great one, um, Always a Bridesmaid, too, that I think is really underseen. Yeah, I haven't seen that one. But, you know, when I interviewed her, it was during my first gig as a film critic. When I was the film critic for the Utney Reader magazine, <laughs> if you know what that is. <laughs> it was like a Reader's Digest of the Left that was published in Minneapolis, Minnesota, oh, and it's okay. still published somewhere. But I interviewed her for that. They only reviewed movies that were coming out on tape. Uh, it was a really strange job <laughs> that I had at one time. Um, but, you know, your, your I guess your question... So, you know, that, that for instance, that article that I was talking about that was an IndieWire, it, it, it resolutely refuses to mention any serious documentary filmmakers besides the kind of people that would make something like Navalny. So in addition to not mentioning Fred Wiseman, nor does it mention international filmmakers that make documentaries that are related to this kind of thing. It doesn't mention Wang Bing, for instance, who's, you know, one of the great world filmmakers. It doesn't mention a named Pat Warden from India. It, it, you know, this kind of discourse focuses only on films that are made by Americans. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times the filmmakers who make them are not people that I would really even consider filmmakers in a way. They're like people who in an earlier era would have tried to write a nonfiction book about these subjects. But because of the world we live in now, they make a film instead or miniseries instead. You know, they're kind of they're often very wealthy people who make these. They come from wealthy families and they live in this world of kind of constant discussion of documentary ethics that's really mm-hmm. empty mm-hmm. and um you know it, their their filmmaking practices often seem based on their own feelings of guilt um you know it, it's it's a whole it's a whole subworld of the cinema that is not very interesting you, you know compared mm-hmm. to like a Wiseman film or a Wang Bing film but it exists for people that do not have the patience to watch films that are good, you know, and, and, you know, for a lot of these filmmakers, I think it's like, we have to prove to our parents that we have jobs. <laughs> That's yeah. why they're making films. Right. Yeah. Like, this is why I don't work in an ad agency. Cause I do this. Yeah. And like, too, like there's, I guess, thinking, thinking about your introduction again, there's like a subsummation a bit of documentary or not a bit, you know, almost totally, at least in terms of like the industry as entertainment, you know, it's a, it's another content product, you know, akin to a Marvel movie or a Netflix, you know, Adam's family series, or, you know, there's no differentiation there. Right. And it all has to, uh, meet the same, um, 
like goals and and expectations of those products you know like to the using navani as example again what is he in that film other than a superhero right like yeah uh yes i mean i didn't see the only two documentaries i saw that were nominated for oscars this year were all the beauty and the bloodshed yeah which i loved yeah and um fire of love mm-hmm which I also thought was great. Although that's kind of a more of a commercial product in a way. Yeah, Nacho. Yeah. Than the po- than the Poitras film is. Um, but you know, I really like both those movies for you know different reasons. But I think those films are made by, you know, by serious people. And and it's interesting sure. that the subject of each of those films is other artists, mm. other documentary artists. True. You know, is the subject of e- each of those movies. Um, but you know, the, the piece that you're referring to where I was the introduction to my book, which is a piece called remember me on this computer, um, which is online. It's also the intro to my book. If anybody wants to read it, I'm working on another collection now that's probably going to come out by the end of the year Oh, cool! that will have another, uh, kind of introduction, long introduction like that. Well, one of the things that you talk about in the intro is, uh, how you wanted to like eschew the stuff that that really bogs down criticism, the plot synopsis stuff, which you know the capsule form is well suited to. But I was thinking about how part of part of what also makes Wiseman's films so interesting to watch is how they also like eschew, like you can explain what a Wiseman film is in like five words, but you don't have to like you're not trying as a viewer to like figure out what's going on in terms of like following this plot. Like you're kind of just like able to dive in and, and kind of navigate it yourself. Um, so there's an interesting parallel there, but I was just going to ask a lot about Aspen, but uh, particularly just why you were drawn to Aspen uh, as, as a choice uh, amongst Ah. Wiseman's films. Well, I I'm I was drawn to talk about Aspen amongst all Wiseman's films because I'm interested in the period that it covers, which is kind of the the very end of the Reagan era and the you know George H. W. Bush era and the early Clinton era. Mm-hmm. This kind of transitional period between the 1980s and the 1990s. And Aspen came out in 1991, as you know. And I think it's an excellent summation of this whole period in American life. <laughs> And, uh, you know, it's presented as this, you know, as this movie about Aspen, Colorado. And it does it does fulfill a lot of, you know, functions that one might expect about, uh, you know, film about, you know, skiing and Aspen, rich people, you know, people who think they're glamorous and and all that kind of stuff. But really what it is, is this kind of examination. It's this kind of look into the dead eyes of Reaganomics. Mm hmm. And, you know, it does that in a really subtle way over its 150 minutes. And, you know, Aspen's kind of short compared to some other Wiseman mm-hmm. films, you know. It's more digestible in a way, even though if you have the DVD from Zipporah, it's on two discs, you know, yes. which is kind of funny <laughs> now. Uh, that 150-minute long movie would be on two DVDs. But, you know, this 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 period between the especially not not just the politics of the two eras but the aesthetics of the two eras the way the two eras looked is very interesting to me especially mm-hmm. the way the kind of very colorful brightly colored 1980s which you see in the ski suits on the slopes mm-hmm. 
of Aspen kind of melded into this kind of beige or taupe era of the early Clinton mm. years, <laughs> which you see in a lot of the interiors, like uh, especially in the scene where the painting workshop is happening. Yeah. <laughs> which, you know, that that's an amazing thing to see in a documentary, <laughs> that one sequence. It's like a circle of hell <laughs> that, we're, that, that, that we're visiting, you know? I just want to talk for a minute about what you're looking at. Well, this is a shade. What's really important is, is this shape, the negative area. So I want to see people drawing negative areas and filling them with color. Because while this thing is brown, or whatever it is, this area right here consists of a lot of stuff behind it, okay? And this birdcage is fabulous. Matisse, if he were here, my God. He couldn't afford one of these. And you only cook a bird. No, never mind. Sorry. No offense. So what, what happens here is that I want you to draw the negative area of the cage. I want you to draw this stuff because you can't see Gauguin where the bars are. You can only see him where they aren't. So I want you to draw that part, you know? That's where he exists, is in the negative area. You can hear him. Yeah, he's worried about the cooking instructions. It, it's so terrible in, in ways that it's really hard to describe what's so horrifying about it. You know, I mean, the guy himself is is just awful. Yeah. You know, the painting instructor. I mean, I guess to put in, to put in some background about this scene, um, it's a meeting of people at night at a in a big kind of. I don't know if it's a condo, some kind of mansion type mini mansion setting in Aspen where this clownish, uh, you know, blow dried guy wearing a Picasso T-shirt is teaching a group of maybe a dozen kind of middle aged people how to paint by instructing them to paint the objects in a room. And talking to them about Matisse and about negative space. He keeps harping on negative <laughs> space. In the, in the most obnoxious way. And he's got a glass of wine in his hand the entire time. And then he's got a friend who's who's videotaping all of this, who's wearing a uh, Van Gogh t-shirt. Yeah, they all have different <laughs> paintings on their shirts. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so one thing that's interesting in Aspen is how much videotaping of other yeah. people is yeah. going on within totally. the scenes yeah. that Wiseman is filming. You see a lot of, like, late 80s, early uh, 90s, you know, consumer grade video cameras in Aspen. Yes. There's that big yellow one That's near awesome. the beginning of the film. Yeah. A giant Walkman of a camera. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's so amazing to see. But for some reason, these people who are, you know, in this painting workshop, I, I mean, I guess this guy thought this was worthy of videotaping, you know, because <laughs> I don't know if he ever, anyone ever looked at that again, because he's making such a fool of himself the whole time. And it's hard to tell what, what kind of paint the people are even using in the yeah it's like crayons <laughs> yeah uh, is maybe it crayons or is it oil pastel, pastel? like know. if we're being generous it might be pastel yeah. but but some of some of the drawings looked like you know a crayon drawing a five-year-old would put on a fridge yeah you know? yeah <laughs> it's it's just it's such a in in a way aspen is a film about a, a lost people you know, a mm. lost, you know, it's a film about Americans as kind of a, a, a people whose souls are lost. Mm -hmm. You know, it's about a lot of lost souls who are then beset upon by charlatans. 
Yes. Right? And and that's what this guy is, you know? And when the when the painting instruction scene comes up in the film, which I I think it's about halfway through the film, is that right? It's a little earlier. It, it's pretty a it's one of the earlier scenes, yeah. It's it's at that point in the film that it really starts to coalesce about what's going on in this movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know that we're going to see these hapless people, many of whom are quite wealthy, and a lot of them are kind of newly wealthy. It seems mm-hmm. who mm-hmm. are who, who are looking for things to do in their lives. You know, they like to go to meetings. They like to read books. They they are interested in religion. Um, they're interested in self improvement. Yeah. And, you know, they're constantly subjecting themselves in groups to these these men who are complete <laughs> frauds. Yeah. You know, they're just set up to like fillet them. Yes. Yeah, I think I think talk, talking about the sort of era uh, you have this interest in and thinking about, you know, the accumulation of 12 years of Reaganism, Bushism, you know, and and maybe looking backwards to model which we talked about as being kind of another transitional film for Weissman from like the liberalism of the Carter years into Reagan um but like there's there seems to have been you know the 70s are thought of as this very like kind of spiritual spiritually awakened and aware era you know as as whether or not there was a lot of substance of that it could be debated but here there seems through these 12 years of reagan bush there an accumulation of wealth uh coincided with like an accumulation of of like a lack of spirituality you know some something has been taken out of people that the wealth (laughs) has been given you know right like and and you're right it makes them very susceptible to be taken in by any number of charlatans, you know, homeopathic remedies, uh, this kind of spiritualism uh, class we get meditation. later on in the film. Yeah, meditation, you know, uh, and and any number of um, kind of communal activities with dubious uh, uh, justification. Um, but I think I think the, you know. We, we saw an interview where Weissman admitted, you know, maybe he was a little mean in this film, uh, <laughs> um, which is it gives you a license, I think, to look at some of these scenes in a certain way that maybe uh, Weissman's films don't always do. Aspen is not as mean as it could be as a film. I think he actually holds back quite a bit from truly condemning these people and you know, there, there's a there's a real sense of descending into circles of hell in Aspen, especially by the last scene at the end in the church. Oh my God! <laughs> and I, and I think he I think he pulls back a little bit from the true horror of the lives of the people that he's showing in the film. Mm-hmm. So you know, you talk about you talk about the transition from Carter to Reagan, which is you know you know ten years before this film, a little bit more than ten years before this. It's interesting that. In the movie, there are two celebrities in Aspen. There are two mm-hmm. celebrities that just pop up out of the blue. And one of them is Ed Bradley, who was the, the black correspondent on 60 Minutes and, and who, who, who lived in Colorado. And we see him briefly on a treadmill in a gym. Mm-hmm. You know, and he was the White House correspondent for, um, I guess, CBS during the Carter years. You know, he was the first black White House correspondent. He was an important person in the history of television journalism. 
And in, in uh, Aspen, he's kind of just subsumed into this larger group of people exercising in a gym. Mm-hmm. There's mm-hmm. one close-up of him, and you know, he famously wore an earring, and you know, we, you know, you can see that, I guess. And then the other person who's very Carter era that pops up in the film that's a celebrity is John Denver. Mm-hmm. You know, John Denver is singing in this movie. He just gets up on stage and starts singing with a woman who's um, singing the song Great Balls of Fire <laughs> in a bar band. You know, all of a sudden, John Denver is just there. You know, if you were, you know, as a child, of course, when I was a kid, John Denver was very popular. You know, he was ubiquitous, really. And uh, he's associated with Colorado because, you know, he, he, you know, he was a big celebrity who lived there. Hunter S. Thompson was his neighbor, and Hunter S. Thompson used to make fun of him all the time. And, uh, you know, this, this film that's about the Reagan era does have these kind of two celebrity pop-ins that are very strange and unexpected. It's amazing that those two guys even allowed themselves to be in this film. I mean, I don't think celebrities would do that now. Mm-hmm. Uh, they would, you'd have to get a waiver, you'd have to get, you know, it would be a whole, you know, debacle to just to clear the appearances of these people who just happened to be in these places at the time Wiseman was filming. Right. Um, so, you know, there's this, there's this feeling of celebrity to the film, even though there's not really celebrities in it. Like, the aerobic scenes are so reminiscent of, you know, Jane Fonda workout tapes and so on. Uh-huh. There's that real feeling of 80s Reagan, you know, celebrity, you know, emptiness to, to this movie. And, um, but there are scenes that are, there's a lot, there's several scenes in which people are being touched, like they're being massaged or their nails are being mm-hmm. done or... There's that guy who's getting his feet and hands checked because he might have prostate cancer. Uh-huh. There, there, there's this there's this feeling that um, in the film that although people are constantly trying to improve themselves and they're always skiing and doing these physical activities and they're in these large groups having fun, supposedly, they don't ha- there's not a lot of intimacy in the film. So so the intimacy really comes from people who are doing their their fingernails or putting masks on like dermatological masks on them or you know examining them them in certain ways you know people one one you don't see a lot of labor in this film besides snow mm-hmm. snow plows right. and heavy equipment moving about all the time in the background or between scenes the labor you see is when other human beings are touching other human beings mm. you know um, which is kind of like the, those scenes are kind of like respites from the rest of the movie. Right. Just like the snowplow scenes are kind of like pillow shots between, between the main scenes. You know, there's this kind of Ozu like, uh, you know, static shots of houses mm-hmm. between yeah. the scenes. So, you know, sometimes they're kind of humble houses from the wrong side of town, but mostly they're these new, new, buildings that are sometimes literally under construction yeah under some of them are under construction that kind of separates the big scenes in the movie that was very interesting way to do that um that i don't necessarily associate with his other movies and you never know which house he's gonna go into like we go into the like charades house which is a very strange scene (laughs) okay the charade scene is one of the great scenes in the movie (laughs) yeah because this is a scene of kind of like a small group of people interacting with each other in a personal way. Yeah. But the main guy doing it is so bad at charades <laughs> <laughs> that it's it becomes idiotic. Yeah. Frightened. 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 Frightened.
It's something is What the hell is that? It's a military figure. It's a military figure. It's a military figure. Is it a military figure? Is it a military figure? Is it a military Something yeah. fly, isn't it? Okay, Something the whole great. concept. Yeah. The world. Yes. Tell me about the world. So the whole concept is. Loyal. He's English. My, my country. Is he English? My country. Patriot, patriotic, Kitchen. loyal. Kitchener. Uh, Montgomery. Oh, he's subservient to. Okay, he's subservient to some higher power. You know, he's trying to he's trying to communicate the name Dan Quayle. <laughs> right. In his in his you know in his turn in the game. And I think he's British. There's there's yeah. like there's three or four yeah, British people in the Br- film. I don't know what that's about. But... Yeah. I guess the British descended on Aspen at some point. Yeah. Because right. they're 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 the charlatans that come to America <laughs> and screw everything up. Like the Duke in Huckleberry Finn, you know? Um anyway, this British guy is trying to communicate Dan Quayle in charades, and he's he's like utterly, completely incapable of doing it. <laughs> Yet he's totally convinced that he's doing it properly, that uh-huh. everyone should just understand what he's miming. <laughs> doing, like, pubic hair. <laughs> oh, God, it's so awkward. I think it's pretty telling, though, that his best efforts at communicating Dan Quayle are being read as, like, Goebbels and, like, literal Nazis. Gehring, right? yes. Like, Gehring, yeah, yeah. And, like... You know, I might be getting a little ahead of myself, but I think there is a way to read Aspen the film as a a document of white ethno-nationalism, if not overt fascism. Okay, well, you know, you bring up a very interesting point, because this is something I noticed watching the film again, too. Uh, There's a dinner party scene at some Mm -hmm. rich person's house early in the scene in which a British guy is communicating to a very waspy woman. And they're talking about, for some reason, about the Nuremberg trials. Mm -hmm. I thought you were there and I might have met you. Well, no, I was there, but only on my summer holidays. My father was... My father was... I was a grown-up woman. On the co- well, I was left school. I was, I was 17. I was 17. Well, I was 23, so Exactly. So, uh, the, the it's, it's barely enough to keep us apart. Well, when I, st- I stayed with all these strange ladies in Nuremberg, Erica Mann, Janet Flanner, I don't remember who they all were. They, they took a pool the night. I was, I was this young, I was the only virgin in the ETO, actually. I, I really was. They took a pool, which if the defendants, if they had to sleep with who would they sleep with? Who did they say? Well, he won everything. He won. He, won, he, won, he did. He was the hero of the trial. Yeah, I guess so. Total, totally the hero. He, he, he did in. Who was our prosecutor? Jackson. Well, Jackson. He did in Jackson. The totally. Yes. Did you see that? Really? Oh, you are lucky. And and you know they're talking about Nazis and um, virginity. You know. <laughs> Yeah, it's it, it, so you know. There's a couple of sections in the film where the Nazis are brought up by British people mm-hmm. in this in this movie, which is you know something that was unexpected in it. You know, it, it is a very white film. You, you know, you're you're dealing with uh, skiing. Mm-hmm. You know, this is the you know. Then we see other sports like racquetball. Mm-hmm. 
you know, tennis. I mean, this this is a very white milieu. I mean, there's there's other people in the film who are not white. We mostly see them in that one scene where uh, there's a community meeting and Mexican immigrants are being berated. Yeah. By, by a white Chilean immigrant. By a white yeah. Chilean guy who totally, yeah. totally has internalized all the values of, you know, what you just called a white nationalist <laughs> ethnostate or whatever your phrase was. <laughs> I can't remember now what it was. So, so this Chilean is lecturing Mexicans about fun and business. <laughs> One of the things you mainly gain from this Anglo society, this American society here, is conscience. It's a conscience level towards the individual and towards your surroundings. And how to, you know, how to care for things. Care for the neighbor, care for the traffic laws, and care for, um, uh, care for the environment, you know, all these things that they're happening right now. And, and, <clears throat> And it's a little bit wilder down south of the border. <laughs> you don't have that many laws, and, and everything's better paid off, and you can pay it off easier. Here, uh, there's no bribes, you know, and everything's a little bit more, uh, let's make it a real thing, you know. Let's not make it uh, uh, fun and business, you know. South of the border is fun and business. Here, it's business or fun. One or the other. But if you have fun and business together, it will not work. And he, he's saying that Mexicans are not good citizens because they're not able to properly separate fun and business. Which, first of all, that doesn't make any sense. It's just nonsense. Like so much of what these charlatans say in the film. But secondly, it's a more accurate description of of all the white people in the movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, who, who are living kind of for fun only. For but sure. that is the business of Aspen. We get that one comment briefly. There's like some kind of dance competition and the, the announcer's like... Yeah, big round of applause. These guys did it for nothing and they're worth several hundred million. It's amazing. That's that's a that's a so that's on the ski slopes and it's a yeah. it's a it's some it's some corporate millionaire's birthday party. Yeah. And this party is happening in the form of a luau. Yeah. So, you know, it's wintertime and there's snow on the mountains. They have over their ski suits, like, grass skirts and they're wearing lays. And there's, like, bongos going. Yeah, there's a bad DJ playing Twist and Shout by the Beatles. <laughs> and the guy, um, they're doing, like, a primitive dance. Yeah. You know, they're, right, they're kind yeah. of mocking Hawaiians. And they're all drinking Bud Light and they all have funny wigs on. <laughs> yeah, umbrella hats. And they're, all, and they're all videotaping each other. You know, they have, like, Varney sunglasses, you know. And um, the DJ all of a sudden says, like you said, let's give them a big round of applause. These guys are doing it for nothing, but they're worth several hundred million dollars. It's amazing. You know, it's so unclear what it is they're doing for nothing (laughs) and and why it's amazing. Yeah. But everyone there just applauds them and, you know, is trying to have a good time. And it's very, it's another one of those moments that's so, nothing about it looks fun. And, and the <laughs> stuff the stuff in the ESL class or, or whatever it is, yeah. it is like uh, also directly mirrors one of the first scenes in the film, which is the cosmetic surgery class, which, yeah. or, or like seminar, uh, where, you know, as soon as like anything, you know, the ethnic nose or like, 
black people like they Shallow just keep jawline. yeah they keep uh talking about like all of these innate problems with uh non-white people um and it's so funny because one of the parts where like maybe wiseman is talking about being mean is like the way that davy shoots them is like the exact same profile as the slides <laughs> and he's just like inviting us to just like critique their noses yeah the cosmetic okay so this is like the second or third scene in the movie yeah yeah uh, the the first scene in the movie is monks, right? Monks are in a church, like in um, Essene, yeah, the yeah, Wiseman yep. film. Exactly. And th- there's one of the monks that has this very haunted look. He's got these very piercing blue eyes. He's quite old. He's got long white hair, and he kind of looks like an, an aging cowboy, but he also looks like Charles Manson. <laughs> and uh, he looks like a guy who's seen some shit, <laughs> you yeah. know. And this right. is kind of a good introduction to the movie because um, yeah. he's very he's very American looking and he's a monk and he's very haunted looking. And there, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of cut cutaways to scenes in churches and other places where spirituality is supposed to be happening. But it's not really right. But in this first scene, it is. And, you know, the main guy that the cameraman, Davey, who you mentioned, focuses on is this very haunted looking guy, you know. Well, and and in a scene too, just uh, the you know the monastery seems to be populated often by like countercultural fallouts, you know, kind yes. of maybe who have had experiences similar to what you're reading into this guy's face, right? Yeah. Well, you know, he does look like Manson a little bit, as I said, like the older yeah. Manson, the ultimate countercultural fallout. <laughs> um. But then, you know, then there's the hot air balloon wedding mm-hmm. is kind of the so bridge good. between the, the monastery and the cosmetic surgery banquet. You know, the hot air balloon wedding is um, really strange. Uh, <laughs> okay, now hold his hand and repeat after me. I, Sylvia Gibbons. I, Sylvia Gibbons. With this ring. With this ring. Take thee. Take thee. Joseph Gibbons. Joseph Gibbons. To be my wedded husband. To be my wedded husband. <laughs> Having to hold. Having to hold. The guy kind of has a Tom Cruise affect. Yeah. So they they say their names in that scene, and I looked them up on on Google. <laughs> nice. <laughs> but I couldn't find anything about them. Yeah. Okay. You know there, but you know there was a couple with the same names who live in um, Florida now. Yeah. But it was I couldn't confirm that it was the same people. But they're they're. You know, they're getting married in a hot air balloon high above Aspen, and they're in kind of ski outfits. She's wearing, like, right. a fluorescent lime green <laughs> right. jacket. That that was very odd. And in, be- in between those two scenes is, like, this brief, like, you know, pillow shot stuff of uh, the lily pad agricultural, like, stuff, which co- re- recalls Meat, his uh, film from the, the mid-'70s. Oh, right. That's uh, right. But you also get, like, just between these three quick scenes like first five minutes you get just this strange like idea about like american tradition like the religion and the agriculture and you know this this like uh ostentatious wealth or or uh flamboyant wealth that's that's sort of like taking over and and overshadowing specifically it's a cattle ranch that that he goes to after the monastery Mm -hmm. so we see a lot of cows kind of you know shivering in the cold as as hay hay is being delivered to these cows, and then we go to the, then we go to the um, 
the hot air balloon wedding. Then the cosmetic surgery, which it's like um, it's unclear what it, what what the a man who is a cosmetic <laughs> surgery surgeon is lecturing a large group of people at some kind of yeah. dinner or banquet. Maybe there are other cosmetic surgeons. It's hard to tell. Yeah, and you know what he talks about. He's talking about nose jobs <laughs> mostly. And he talks about... Um, and in fact, when we start to think about it, this field really started when Narcissus saw his reflection uh, in the water. And uh, ever since then, man has, uh, has been hooked on, uh, on appearance. Yeah. Which is kind of like the what the film is. <laughs> it's know? like a very, like, I don't know, like seventh grade language arts intro sort of yeah. <laughs> comparison. Yeah. He's, he's, tr- yeah. <laughs> He's trying to he's trying to class it up, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know. But then he goes right into this girl, this poor girl, inherited her father's ethnic nose. Yeah, he's showing slides of people with, uh, you know, most of them looked fine, you know. <laughs> yeah. Right. He's yeah, not. It's not he, like he's doing them. He's some talking huge about favor. how to grow old gracefully and like is doing what a lot of these people are doing, which are appealing to them. Uh, you know, saying that, you know, uh, you can transcend uh, your life by buying your way into it, yeah. uh, into into something uh, transcendental, uh, which like, you know, it's it's just like the painting scene that we talked about earlier. We have like, whether it's all of the nice, like the fine art that's on their T-shirts or those like Mao Warhols, <laughs> which have to cost a fortune. It's just like none of this stuff means anything to them. They're just buying their way into a, a lifestyle or, or, you know, buying themselves into culture, which is, you know, the classic nouveau riche thing. Yeah, they have 10 copies of, well, they have, not, they're not <laughs> oh, copies. Wow, yeah. They have 10 from the series Prince, of Warhols yeah. Mao paintings. So, so hanging over this entire painting lesson scenes uh, scene are ten paintings of Chairman Mao by Andy Warhol, mm-hmm. and you know that was that reminded me of something I wrote about in Harper's uh, in a piece I did. I guess it was in twenty twenty one about uh, Hollywood during the pandemic, which is that the disgraced studio executive at Universal, Ron Meyer in his office where he would meet with, you know, Angelina Jolie and Jane, Dwayne Johnson and, you know, all other big stars making films for Universal, had a portrait of Chairman Mao <laughs> hanging behind him. It was one of the Warhol Maos also. And um, if I'm not mistaken, that painting later proved to be a forgery that he had purchased oh, uh. <laughs> thinking that it was real. Huh. Wow. So when I saw the Maos in the painting scenes in Aspen, I wondered if they too were, you know, real Warhols or not. Well, yeah, yeah. I wonder if they had a note of authentication, <laughs> like in, right. like we see in the the gallery uh, <laughs> of uh, the hyper realist uh, Coke machines and, and yeah. fire hoses. That's right. So there's there, there's when, when 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 we talk about the painting scene in Aspen, there's actually two painting scenes in Aspen. Yes, and the other one is a uh, gallery opening at a place called the um, Joanne Lynn Gallery Incorporated. Yes. where uh, a painter is showing her new work, which are photorealist paintings of ordinary objects, most of which are corporate branded, like Pepsi <laughs> machines or Coke machines. Although there are some of like fire hoses in, you know, those fire hose yeah. cases that are in the stairwells of buildings yeah, in right. a phone booth and like a kitchen cupboard, which has a lot of products in it. And the woman who's an artist, you know, considering how much in the previous scene about paintings 
the 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 crazed instructor is talking about Matisse and Gauguin. She is she she does not seem artistic at all. The painter, I mean, you know, people can an artist can be anything, right? But she seems more like just an ordinary mom. It's hard to describe she's her without sounding. She's a small business sounding, owner. She's a small. <laughs> she's an entrepreneur. Yeah, yeah. Uh, she's not the gallerist. She's the artist. But there's something very. She doesn't seem like an artist. No, you know. Well, she she talks about her art essentially the direction of her art being dictated by market forces. You know. Well, she brings up Reaganomics specifically. Right. Yeah. She uses the term Reaganomics in talking about her art. <laughs> and she she poses her art as the opposite of abstract expressionism because the market has changed. Right. She used to make abstract art, but then she realized somehow that it wasn't really art, she says. And she's conceiving of like the kind of final resting place for these pieces to be in like second homes you right know, like like uh, inherently uh, for the you wealthy. Know, wealthy. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I wish that I wish that it was possible to ascertain what her name is. <laughs> yeah, true. Yeah, because I want to look her up too and see what's happened in her career. Yeah, that that would be good. She has this great line: "They're comfortable, they're fun. You know, if Monet, if Monet can paint haystacks and water lilies, and Andy Warhol can paint tomato soup cans, then what's wrong with a fire hose and a telephone booth?" You know, she talks about she's being interviewed by somebody for local news when she's saying this. Yeah. The Warhol thing is kind of an afterthought that she has. Mm-hmm. But what she's really talking about is, is you know, the haystacks of uh, the Impressionist painting and, uh, and other kinds of natural things in the natural world. You know, so she's really positioning herself as not... Like, she's, she's saying... Impressionists might have looked at the, natu- the, the natural world, but I do not look at the natural world. Mm-hmm. I I only look at the man-made world of consumer products, and that's that kind of is what leads mm-hmm. to Warhol in her mind. Right? She 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 specifies she she specifies that they're tomato soup cans, right. you know, not just soup cans or whatever. You know, uh, I mean, her in her paintings are. It's hard to imagine who would want to have a nine foot tall <laughs> painting of a Coke machine, a photorealist painting of a Coke machine in their house. Because it does just look like there's a Coke machine in your house yeah. if you have that on the wall. It's like Wiley Coyote trying to trick the Roadrunner. It is. <laughs> yeah, she's really achieved that level of, of artistic success. The Trump Loy is very Warner Brothers. And it, there's like a bulletin board and like Folgers Coffee and, and like stuff that, that would be found in like a work lounge or like a factory lounge. And, and you get the sense that like, there's this fetishization of like working class life, like stuff that that isn't really found in, in this circle of Aspen, uh, which, you know, may as well be Mars at times. Um, and so, yeah, it, it's like uh, not only buying themselves into culture, but also being able to like, I don't know, buy a blue collar life as well. It's 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 really strange. Yeah, that that scene is. That scene is. I, I I felt that that Joanne Lynn gallery scene was actually kind of too short. I wanted to hear more mm-hmm. from that lady. Sure, you know, you you mentioned working class or blue collar life in Aspen. It's 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 important in the structure of the film that the Joanne uh, Lynn gallery painter comes right after the scene that is 
actually a celebration of working class values, mm-hmm. which is a 40th anniversary party. Of yeah. A firefighter. That, that an ex-firefighter is having with his ex- family, his extended family, at some kind of function hall that's not glamorous at all. It's beautiful. And, you know, we hear, we hear the song, Take This Job and Shove It, playing through <laughs> out a lot of that scene. You know, the Johnny Paycheck song. Yeah. And that's the only that's the only scene in the movie where anyone is nice to people who aren't white. Mm. Of course, this big family is white, uh, but they have a friend who's I don't know, I'm not sure if he's Mexican or Native American. Yeah, I'm not sure either. But he he stands up and makes a speech about it. <laughs> one, of the, one of the reasons why I'm here is um, they had a really open house, and I think I'm one of the really fortunate ones to have come into their family and I feel like I'm part of their family and I think they are also part of my family and uh, it's really special and I want to say I love you and give them. <laughs> and you know, uh, in, in, you know, there's other testimonials to the man happening too. This is just one of them, but it seems very sincere and heartfelt and, um, it's a big contrast from the scene where the white Chilean is berating all the Mexicans in the <laughs> community <laughs> board meeting. Or, or, the, or the priest at the end talking about, like, the dangerous part yeah, of town. Like, <laughs> you can't leave your skis in the trunk, yeah. But this, <laughs> I mean, this scene is, is like, so, so important and so beautiful. But, um, uh, yeah, so it's the Clapper family uh, 40th anniversary yes. thing. And, and this kind of also leads me to another question I wanted to ask you. Scott, um, because like in 1990, I was five years old. Uh, Arlen, I think you were around the same age, maybe slightly younger. But uh, seeing this fellowship hall type thing, this like sort of moose lounge. uh, Yeah, wood paneled. Yeah, uh, like just seeing the chairs and the fabric of it. Like there's something about his interest in in, like Wiseman's innate interest in this uh, walk of life. that is also like just a nice like archival like it's it's really interesting just to like see these textures that I remember growing up in. Um, but I don't know. Do you have this? You know that an aesthetic that is not preserved. But do you have like Scott as somebody who's older than us? Do you have like a a, a different perspective on like just this these fabrics of of this time? Well, you know, I grew up in a small town where there was a volunteer fire department, and you know. Um... But you know where I'm living right now. There's a moose lodge right down the right down the road from me. Nice. You know, on on the main drag in the town, there's a moose lodge. You, you know, I mean it, that doesn't seem out of time to me at all. Those those mm-hmm. parts of the film. Mm-hmm. It kind of re- so there's there's a scene later. There's a scene near the end of the film. It's one of the it's one of the it might even be the penultimate scene of the film. I'm not sure where there's a um, it's like Saturday night in Aspen Mm -hmm. and we're in this weird kind of dance hall where there are people in kind of jazz age outfits dancing with each other to a pre-recorded, you know, kind of light version of twenties or thirties jazz that's pre-recorded. And there's a drummer sitting on stage, but he's not drumming. He's just (laughs) sitting there with nothing to do. Because this pre-recorded track is playing and people are dancing. And then that cuts to Sunday morning in Aspen, which is the long church scene that you just referred to, with the guy talking about the bad parts of Denver and, you know, leaving his skis in the car, which we can talk more about. But 
the contrast between the um, Clapper family testimonial, you know, banquet scene and the fake jazz age dancing scene was interesting <laughs> to me because the the first scene kind of reminded me of all the wedding scenes in the deer hunter. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For yeah, sure. for sure. I was actually thinking about that too. Yeah. Yeah, and then the the fake jazz age dancing scene reminded me of the dancing in Heaven's Gate. Uh, huh. But it was done in this completely plastic way. Yeah, it reminded run yeah, me of Fellini. They're doing some kind of It feels silly like kooky. Fellini to me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But but Heaven's Gate is in Colorado. Yeah, yeah. You know. Mm-hmm. And um, so there was this weird. Sh- I, I I just recently read and wrote a short review of the new, a new book on Michael Cimino. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you know, Cimino was in mind in my mind while I was watching this. There's nothing. You know, I mean, Fred Wiseman is not a filmmaker or anything like Michael Cimino, except that his films are long. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, but the the uh, the 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 way that Heaven's Gate strives for authenticity. In the, in the dancing scene with all those people dancing in it, versus just these like four couples dancing to this pre-recorded music with this drummer on stage, mm-hmm. was like kind of a. It's like if you compare those two scenes, it's like a history of America, <laughs> you know. <laughs> mm-hmm. And the, the 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 dancing scene was very strange and sad. Like, what was that place even? It I seems to be in the center of town. Yeah, it, it, yeah, that's a weird part of the film in general. It comes after the charades, and then we see like the Esprit store, which he like zooms in on this smile. Um, is the dancing scene? Are you talking about the um, the one inside or the one outside? Because there's also a dan- inside. There's also yeah, the, the dancing all in, like, scene fancy outside. Dress. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, they're in. It's it's supposed to be like a jazz age ball. Of yeah, some yeah. Because then there's they're a dancing, dancing scene really weird. That's outside. Yeah. I think maybe after that, that is is more of like a um, well, right right before that, uh, we see some buskers on the street. Okay, that's what I'm yeah, thinking. Of, right. right, they're playing yeah. bluegrass music. Right, yeah. right. No, so the, the dancing seems the dancing scene I'm referring to comes right before the Sunday preacher, which gotcha. is the end of the film. And that dancing scene, it also kind of reminded me of The Shining. Yeah, for totally. sure. Which yeah. also takes place yeah. in Colorado. True. You know, <laughs> snowplows, like, lots of snowplows. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know the 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 evocation of the past in The Shining, mm-hmm. set yes. set mm-hmm. in this snowy wilderness where there's no one there but you know one family now. <laughs> yeah. Was kind of like the dancing. It's kind of, it, the dancing in that scene in the Wiseman film and Aspen has this kind of haunted quality. Totally. Mm-hmm. Like it's an emanation from the past coming through, but in a way yeah. that sucks. well and the pastor at the end is also talking about like a new like a new generation or something like that like uh delineating like you know he's talking about this oneness and you're connected with everybody but but uh he directly references like a new uh generation that is moving forward which you know uh is very much the shining uh in opposition to the old generation or you know the indian burial ground type stuff Oh yes, that's true. You know the the stuff with the the very slick evangelical preacher at the end of the film, talking to his congregation, which is not it's not like a huge mega church, but it's kind of a lot of people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, you you you. It's easy to make fun of him talking about the dangers of the inner city, and you know how, you know, black people at a church in an inner city are are you know, threatened in ways that his congregants are not. 
even though he expresses that awkwardly, I thought that he was kind of getting off to a good start in that, in his, in his sermon, you know, Mm -hmm. I didn't, I didn't find that to be, you know, inherently racist, just awkward. Yeah. But but as he goes on, as he goes on, he really digs himself into a very deep hole. (laughs) It's funny because a lot of the contemporaneous reviewers find that scene to be moving and find it to, to be like an empathetic view. But yeah, as he keeps going on and like making up these, this fiction about a congregation and like, in do, doing it in the most sensational way, like talking about some woman who's been raped a million times and talking about like a husband who murdered the ex and they're together now and they're a miracle. It's just like, like, what are you, what are you doing? How are you taking this seriously? I think what he's doing, I think what he's doing, you know, subconsciously, I think what he's doing is he's mimicking the way that the media works. Uh-huh. It's like a news show. So you start off talking about violence in the inner city. Then you talk about how threatening it would be if that was happening to you. What if your car was getting broken into in the parking lot of this church? Wouldn't that be terrible? Therefore, we should have sympathy (laughs) for these other Christians who that is happening to. Right. Then he moves on to these horrible stories, like you mentioned, about this woman who's been raped a hundred times by her father, he says. And about this guy that killed his whole family. It becomes (laughs) very, very sensationalistic. Uh, like in a tabloid style, you know, it's it's insane that this guy is talking about this in a sermon in his church. But as as it becomes more and more sensational, and he's talking about drug addicts and how the guy became a janitor at the church because he was so you know he he was a murderer, but he had gotten out of jail, and they were giving him a second chance. Uh, he pulls it back and he starts talking about how many celebrities go to the church. So he starts talking about how one of the uh, congregants is the lead singer of the Oak Ridge Boys. And he starts then talking about, then he gets to the sports section of the program. He starts talking (laughs) about how God is in the church and God is in our hearts and relieves us of our loneliness. As surely as the Denver Broncos are present at a football game in their stadium. Right. So in his sermon, he's covered the whole gamut of a news show. Yeah, <laughs> sensationalized yeah. violence perpetrated by black people to domestic violence, murder, rape, Drugs. then to celebrities and then uh, to sports. Yeah. yeah. So he, he starts off in, a, in what seems like a very human way talking about that there are people who are not as fortunate as us and we should we should love them also. Mm-hmm. But he completely deep deep sixes that with the rest of the sermon. And at the end, he's talking about how great the Denver Broncos are. <laughs> it's a bit pa- pandering it's, to yeah, the choir, yeah. yes. you know. Um, but I think I think you know something else he talks about that I think is one of the key things throughout the film is 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 uh, he talks about how like God be- manifests when they are all together, when the community is together yes. in a space. That is when you see God. Um, but it seems to the God you see is dependent upon the type, the character of the community that's coming together and building this God. And this is like, you know, sort of a prosperity gospel, right. Of, you know, uh, well-to-do congregants. One thing I was uh, a film, another film I'd watched recently was um, Jane Schoenbrunn's uh, Slender Man doc, uh, self-induced hallucination. 
And they talk about Slender Man as being something called an egregore, something that's like given form because a bunch of people kind of think about it Mm -hmm. and decide collectively that it exists. So therefore it does, you know, and what is the kind of God that comes to be made when all the people we have seen throughout this film get together in a church to worship? I think that's like the central irony of of the film because, uh, and we see it collide like in the meditation scene where like all the care it's all about individualism when when it's focused on anything other than like the work working class life it's all about people you know uh sort of playing at spirituality but also like trying to transcend that with like cosmetic surgery or whatever like trying to transcend life and achieve this oneness but really it's all driven by individual uh motivations and i love the meditation scene because they can't even decide what is like the spirituality that they're trying to like achieve. They're like, oh, well, we're part of the ocean. Well, we're holograms. <laughs> no, we're definitely holograms. One thing about that scene and the meditation scene is that it's, again, it's being led by a British person. <laughs> yeah. The woman, yeah. the woman leading the meditation is British and she keeps, she keeps saying. We're like holograms. We're all the same parts or we're all different parts. Like holograms. We all, the, we're all fragments, but we're also part of the whole. We're like holograms. Her pronunciation of hologram hologram is so so extreme, yeah, you know, that yeah. it becomes comic. <laughs> she keeps saying it, but um, you know, there's the, there's a scene. You there's this, there's that other scene that's a, a, a meeting, a Christian meeting, specifically about economics. Oh God! Oh yeah. sure. Yeah. So we we, <laughs> we see yet another British man doing a <laughs> lecture to to a bunch of a bunch of uh, believers called God and the Global Economy. And when she's like trying part, to... what Part well, six. It's like part six or something. Yeah. He, he, yeah, it's like part six of his series. Yeah, like, oh, we're all back together to hear the last in my series of lectures. And he's talking about um, how Christian capitalism is a, is a form of self-help. Yeah. Specifically. And he's trying to make a distinction between stewardship and growth and fairness and justice. That that he's he's not able to do convincingly. No, you know, and um, he 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 starts talking about the industrial revolution. You may recall <laughs> yeah. about- the industrial revolution uh, came along, which was a very good thing. But what they did to their workers was a very bad thing. And we asked ourselves the question: Why why could that possibly have happened in just the space of two centuries? And we identified some. Uh, mistakes that the uh, reformers had made, and we uh, also identified the convenient forgetting of some fundamental principles that the uh, good Christian businessmen in Lancashire and Yorkshire and elsewhere, uh, what they forgot in order to allow them to put poor small children down the mines and exploit them. We then looked at three further Christian views, the Protestant liberal view, the traditional evangelical view, as we call it, and the yuppie evangelical view, uh, which a lot of us here subscribe to, although we wished that we didn't. We then looked at the strict capitalist view, and we thought we'd even learn something from the Buddhists. Uh, tonight, thought we would change tack again and try and, try and sort of pull it together, the, the, the whole question. Um, this guy is a very conflicted figure in the film, you know? Because he's talking about what he calls the yuppie evangelical view of Christianity and how, how the people assembled in this meeting succumb to that too much. Mm-hmm. But he, he, kind of, kind of, he kind of ends up saying that that is the only rational view we can have about the economy now. 
So right. it, 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 he's not really able to to square it with Christian values at all. Which is the central like contradiction of Reaganomics and the evangelical, right? Is like like it is inherently unchristian way to set up the economy. Yes, and the film reflects the film is very prescient in a way because it starts with a celebration of leisure activities yeah amongst the wealthy they're all skiing and they have colorful outfits on one guy has like that like twin peaks floor looking totally. pattern <laughs> black and white yeah. t- you know tile outfit that's so crazy it starts out talking about the leisure activities of the wealthy and as the film progresses over its 150 minutes, the last quarter of the film is dominated by Christian evangelicals. So, so this trajectory is the trajectory that we have all experienced that's gotten to us, gotten to gotten us to where we are now. Mm-hmm. And the monastery sort of resonates over all of that, right? Yeah, because you know they they have they have separated themselves from that. But like I said, the guy has such a haunted look, you know? Yeah, yeah. And and it's a film that's bookended by these two scenes, the yeah. church and the monastery, you know, with spiritualism being evoked throughout. And I think I think the preacher at the end talks about, you know, it's impossible not to think about God, you know, in this setting up at the top of the mountains, you know, it's like just just being there sort of evokes these these theological questions and ideas and and pontifications um yet you know what it, it's there's a hollowness to it and you know you mentioned i i noted i no, made a note about the twin peaks jacket too but just thinking about it uh that when you said that made me think of you know who who are the bad people in twin peaks it's uh ben horn the wealthy oh, yes. industrialist you know uh who is the ultimate evil you know spoilers for twin peaks but <laughs> it's his lawyer um right yes. you know who has come in and corrupted his family corrupted the town um and it's this also similar uh social strata of you know kind of working class people throughout the town under the thumb of the business class you know uh, the wealthy class um so I don't know. I just thought of that when. when well, you, were you know, the, about the Aspen and Twi- Aspen and the first, the first Twin Peaks are almost, you know, came out almost at the same totally. time. Right. Yep. Yeah. Yep. They're they're both products of the same period in American, you know, cultural history. For sure. Right. And I guess Blue Velvet too would have would have been dealing with similar themes and ideas of of you know the the rot of the cultural uh, milieu that would rise out of the Reagan years. Yeah, the the preacher at the end talks about how you can't find God when you're stuck in traffic in a city like Denver. Yeah, mm-hmm. but when you're when you're amongst the majestic peaks and the vistas of Aspen, it's easy to find God. So you don't have to do much work to do that. <laughs> Finding God is a form of leisure activity when you're in that. Setting. <laughs> It's a byproduct of your leisure. You yeah. know, your your leisure is godly. It leads right. you to exactly, and you know, to thinking about the idea of of uh, ski lifts. You know, this kind of perpetual ascent that they're all doing, only to to sort of uh, go into this controlled freefall back down the mountain and do it all again. This kind of eternal uh, loop, I think, kind of mirror, mirrors 
what would be spiritual labor, but is, is being positioned as kind of just, yeah, like a byproduct of leisure time activity. Yeah, they don't have to go up to the mountain on their own. They're taken up to yeah. the mountain in these modular space age crafts. Pods. Yeah, <laughs> yeah these pods. Scott, I wanted to yeah. I wanted to talk about a couple scenes that we haven't touched on um, be- before we stop stealing your time. But I wanted to we can talk about them separately or together. But um, the 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 men's fellowship on divorce and um, the uh, the scene about the uh, Flaubert's A Simple Heart oh, yes. dis- book discussion. Yes. Um, but, uh, one of the things I love about, uh, and this is maybe, I mean, in the scene about, uh, divorce, the men's fellowship Bible study scene, um, I think it is one of those things where, you know, some of them say some things that, that seem reprehensible, but, uh, Wiseman is also empathetic about some of like, he's, we're watching a, a, a civic discourse and we're, we're watching people who are disagreeing with each other, but also trying to make sense of life together. I, th- I think it's a really magnetic scene. Well, the men's divorce scene, it, it, at the beginning of that scene, it's kind of hard to tell what they're talking about. You notice, right, you, you can tell it's a Christian Bible study group of some sort and that they're all men. Mm-hmm. But you don't really know right away, as I recall, that they're talking about divorce. Right. But what they end up saying is that even though Jesus says that divorce is wrong, it's actually okay. <laughs> yeah. You know, they're they're there to study the word, but they reject the word. You know, and then the man re- the man running the running the course says, "Some Pharisees came to him and tried to trap him." Tell us, they asked, does our, law allow, does our law allow a man to divorce his wife? Jesus answered with a question. What law did Moses give you? Their answer was, Moses gave permission for a man to write a divorce notice and send his wife away. Jesus said to them, Moses wrote this law for you because you are so hard to teach. But in the beginning, at the time of creation, God made them male and female as the scripture says. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and unite with his wife. And the two will become one. So they are no longer two, but one. Man must not separate then what God has joined together. Because you all are so hard to teach. You know, I don't know if you remember that phrase, but I mean, they're, they're impossible to teach because they, you know, he, he brings up that divorce is wrong according to, right. you know, the Bible. Yeah. But then all the dudes say, yeah, but in my case, it's right because, you know, my wife was, <laughs> come on, I'm not going to stay married to her. Right. You know, it, it, would, it would be unspiritual to remain married to this horrible person. Well, the scene, it starts at this like hard fixed, you know, biblical interpretation position. And then as it goes on, they sort of unravel it and try and justify divorce. And it becomes apparent that many people have gone through a divorce or are currently going through a divorce. And there's a lot of self-interest there to find uh, a spiritual or theological justification for, for what they've done or what they're doing. Um, yes. which it drifts I think, very quickly. <laughs> Yeah, right. But I think some of them are also trying to make sense of their feelings like about like, well, I don't consider it a a failed relationship because I treasure, you know, what that relationship 
was, even though it's over. Well, and, he says that in the same breath as being like, but until I was married the second time, I didn't realize that you could be really happy in a relationship. <laughs> oh, yeah, right, right, right. You know, like, yeah. like so success, successful by what metric? You know, you, you produce children, you know? Like, Maybe, but, uh, and yeah. then, and then, but it ends on the guy saying, like, people do change. Um, yeah, which right. is also interesting. Like it, it's like trying to make sense of something that, or it's like, it feels like some of them are trying to understand like that having this fixed meaning over something that's so complex and that deals with so many people. You know, if you have a family, like there are, there's like such a fallout, like so many people are impacted that like, it's impossible to have this fixed thing over it and be, and, and have it make sense. A lot of the scenes of group meetings in which lost souls are presenting themselves to charlatans for guidance Mm -hmm. do show individuals in the groups really trying to grapple with meaning. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But no one in the film grapples with it in a productive or successful way. Because there's something inherent in the form that they're engaging in that prevents them from doing that. Mm Mm-hmm. Like right. in a community meeting with the Chile with the white Chilean guy, you know, every meeting is kind of like that community meeting. And we, you know, we, we see how we've certainly seen in the last few years how those kinds of community meetings are often hijacked by people who have an agenda. Mm-hmm. Now now in Aspen, the agenda is subtler. You know, it's not as out in the open and people aren't as aggressive and angry because they're on the up they're on the upswing here, kind of. Mm-hmm. You know. These are people that are making money and they're not um, they're not angry and frustrated about their economic position. You know, these are the these are the rich Republicans. Yeah. And and they don't seem they don't seem super wealthy. So the the book discussion group scene. Yeah. You know, speaks to this. Right. They're talking about Flaubert's um, short story, um, A Simple Heart, which is about a woman named Felicity who is basically a maid mm-hmm. and you know her life is on on the outside someone someone in the book discussion group makes a very good point about that story which is that her life seems nondescript and and you know unhappy or or plebeian or below average or you know like she didn't really fulfill herself in some way but everyone around her is a terrible person you know, she she's a good she's a good person in the Flaubert story compared to the people that she meets in the story. So someone brings this up and, and is immediately shut down, right? Yeah. By that one couple who keep insisting that it's not it's a waste of time to write a story about someone like this. And the guy saying that calls Felicity a lowly worm. Yeah. He keeps calling her a lowly worm over and over again. <laughs> it's such a strange thing to say about this beautiful story about this, uh, this, this, this almost tragic story about this simple person. And he's really adamant about it. I'm being asked to, in a sense, evaluate her life. And I have to evaluate it from my point of view. And as far as I'm concerned, she was more or less of a waste. And, and to me, uh, the world is filled with many people like that. And the mere fact that you love people, my dog loved me, my cat loved me, uh, all very beautiful. But uh, t- 
to me, maybe I'm a utilitarian, but uh, she went right through this thing, left nothing behind, uh, took nothing with her. Well, I think there's there's skin in the game there, right? You right. know, there there's an element of self-preservation to his comments and, and you know, backing up his probably personal politics. Um, but, you know, he, he basically says she's stupid and like a waste of a life, yeah. you know, and, and saying that she's representative of untold, you yeah. know, yeah. millions of people in the real people in the world, you know, that are like her. You know, uh, and and yeah, it's probably no, uh, not hard to guess who he's voted for. But it, thinking about the lack of self awareness there, he talks about all these stupid people that the government takes advantage of, and they're all taken in by you know uh, whatever. Thinking about everything we've seen in this film of rich people being taken in by all manner of you know charlatans as we've been calling them, but uh, not not making that connection at all saying it's only the poor that are uh susceptible to to such you know wily ways the guy that says that about felicite in the flaubert story is like the painter at the art gallery talking about monet (laughs) or is it it man you know so she's saying well you know if you can paint haystacks if you could if you could paint haystacks in the 19th century you know, the Flaubert story is a product of the 19th century also. Today we can paint pictures of Coke machines and Pepsi machines and <laughs> coffee makers and phone booths. You know, she's rejecting, you know, she's rejecting the simple heart of the 19th century in, in the same way that this guy is. Mm-hmm. He, he's saying that no one like Felicity is worth writing about or even discussing. Yet he has no counterexample. Mm. Uh, like the painter does, right? Her counterexample is something ridiculous, but he doesn't even have that. You know, right. his only counterexample, I guess, is himself, as you say. You know, he's not saying, "Well, there's this great, there are these great novels about you know uh, wealthy right. people." He doesn't bring up War and Peace or something, right? Or or uh, Balzac or you know something. He doesn't bring up anything except for his own life. You know, so so it's interesting in the film that in these two on these two occasions, contemporary people talking about literature and painting reject 19th century, uh, you know, iterations of examining examining the lives of the poor, you know, a maid, a farmer, whatever it is, mm-hmm. in favor of this this Reaganomic approach to, um, totally. you know, whatever whatever the guy's approach is supposed to be in the in the book group scene. I'm not sure what it is, but. You know, he does not come off very well in this in this film. <laughs> <No. Yeah. laughs> and they talk about gender in that at the end of that discussion, which reminds me, uh, I, I forgot to mention, um, at the end of the divorce uh, men's Bible study scene, it goes to a scene of uh, a teacher and some kids talking about ge- geese gender. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, yeah, the and males. Extinction, yeah. Uh, which is then followed up by women wearing mink coats. Uh, <laughs> oh yes, that, that's that's a great part of the film, you know. Yeah, the the man lecturing children about ducks, <laughs> um, and that's kind of a brief scene in the movie. But he's he's really part of something that threads its way through the film, which is that people um, come into the film for a very kind of like blips, 
mm-hmm. and they talk about environmentalism and con- con- conservation. Yeah. They talk about conservation for like five seconds and then they're gone. Yeah, true. true. Yeah. And that happens like three or four times throughout the film. And he's one of those people because he starts his talk to those children about why it's important to preserve wildlife and the environment. Yeah. Then he veers off into, you know, duck sexuality. <laughs> I think yeah, a couple couple things about this brief scene, but one is is there's a great just demonstration of Weissman's technique, both as a sound recordist and an editor, uh, as we see this group of kids waddling off in snowshoes <laughs> while he layers over the soundtrack the ducks quacking in the subsequent shot. <laughs> and and uh, but this um pedagogical scene you know is something that he will firm up in his later community films and you know this is kind of the first of a series but you know we have the moby dick scene coming in belfast uh, and we have uh what was it like a baseball scene in monrovia Mm -hmm. or something in the classroom you know but but you know get getting a, a little inkling and i you know something we haven't talked about yet is is just this idea of weissman's community films and like where this kind of stands within it you know the only we had canal zone before it um but that you know was early on maybe a little different but i think some of the the reviewers we've read sort of had trouble uh thinking about this film in relation to his body of work and you know is it is it looking at aspen as an institution itself uh or is it looking at institutions within this community and you know how they interact and commingle and and how is weissman sort of creating this impressionistic portrait of what aspen is well i haven't seen belfast but the film did remind me of monrovia indiana quite a bit there's a kind of hopelessness in a way to both those films yeah you know um, it does seem like a transitional film in Wiseman's career between institutional, you know, institutional critique, not a term that I love, but, um, you know, and what, what in the community films, it does seem transitional. Yeah. It's funny that the, um, it's interesting going back to the guy talking about the ducks that the next shot is of women in fur coats shopping roving gang of fur a roving gang of (laughs) women and minks yeah like but then then there's all the scenes in the mall with the hair care and the salon and the nails being done and like the the mask being put on the woman's face and the massage but there's something very interesting at the end of that scene which is he cuts back to the street and there's this person going down the street in an electric wheelchair in an electric wheelchair with like a big black shroud over them. Do you remember that shot? <laughs> no, yeah. It's right after the it's right after the woman's being massaged in the salon. Okay. There's a person in a motorized wheelchair and they're wearing like some kind of weird black shroud. <laughs> and it was very kind of chilling to cut to that somehow. Huh. Uh yeah, that that was very strange, I thought. Um and it reminded me that you know, this film, this is a film that, in addition to being a Wiseman documentary, is also Wiseman commenting on kind of filmmaking uh, of the time, I think, in in some way, because there are actually two shopping montages in this film that are yes. scored to music. Sure. 
that are scored to music like Pretty Woman or something. <laughs> you know, we, we see two scenes of people shopping in malls where there's music playing as they shop and he cuts the scene together, keeping the Muzak track right. from the shopping intact. You know, so so in, in 80s films and early 90s films, you, you often saw these scenes set in malls where people are totally. shopping and there's some kind of. Fast Times at Ridgemont High type stuff. Yeah, right. Something like Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Things with teenagers oftentimes. Where they're shopping and there's like a there's a pop hit playing while they shop. Mm -hmm. One of the times in this movie, it's the song, uh, it's the Randy Newman song, I think, Mama Told Me Not to Come. Three Dog Night, yeah. Yeah, being performed by Three Dog Night in one of the shopping scenes, which is, was the Muzak in the store, I guess, when he was recording all that. But it's odd to see Wiseman doing, you know, shopping montages. Yeah, and yeah. that that scene takes place in, I think, uh, it's got all this logo wear for a place called Boogie's Diner. Yeah, <laughs> Boogie's Diner. <laughs> Which, oh. yeah, somebody somebody referred to as like a hard rock knockoff uh, in a in a review. Um, yeah, there's a lot there's there's a lot of like also just nostalgia in the songs. You know, there's like the Supremes, Where Did Our Love Go, The Beatles, as you mentioned, Great Balls of Fire. Uh, like, you know, potentially a, this nostalgia for a conservative time. Well, it's see, the movie is kind of like the big chill in some ways. Yeah. yeah. Right. Uh -huh. the, the, the big chill is kind of the ultimate movie of the, you know, of the yuppie taupe years, <laughs> you know, the beige period. Right. <laughs> And that movie is all done with Motown songs. Yeah, for sure. So when we hear Where Did Our Love Go by the Supremes near the beginning of the film, and it's in this setting where these groups of people are getting together, it's kind of reminded me of the Big Chill, especially when we, when we go into the interiors and everything is so beige and gray and light brown and, you know, everything seems new, but it's ugly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It, you know, it had a Big Chill feel to me. Well, it, and Canal Zone, too, we talked about you know that nostalgia for the conservative 50s they're essentially recreating that sort of like beaver-esque uh milieu like in central yeah, yeah. america the 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 supreme song where did our love go also just reminds me of the british woman in the meditation scene saying like there are only two emotions in the world which is love and fear and whatever emotions you may see if it's not love it boils down to fear ultimately <laughs> and it's like fear fear of what 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 exactly are these people someone of? contradicts her though and says there are there are only two emotions but those aren't the ones <laughs> <laughs> one is love but the other isn't fear <laughs> uh i i think that there's there's a difference between like 50s music and 60s music yeah mm -hmm. and the motown the motown and the beatles music in aspen is different yeah. than great balls of fire yeah. I associate I, I associate the kind of the big chill style score more with with yuppies than with people who are trying to keep the kind of leave it to beaver fifties yeah. going. That makes sense. It's kind of it's kind of more nefarious in it, a way. It's than the that. people who in their youth may have been listening to that music and may have occupied some sort of countercultural position or, or liberalism, but 
you know, as they went on in years and, you know, maybe became stockbrokers, you know, maybe became the type of people who have second homes and vacation in Aspen, right? Like, uh, there's, there's a narrative of that journey. Well, this is, this is a time where you could still sell out, like selling out was a thing that you could still do. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's that, that kind of goes back to the scene with the book group talking about a simple heart. Because the, 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 the man who's completely rejecting the idea of even writing a story about someone like Felicity yeah. is uh, saying, you know, he kind of ends, he kind of ends his, his discourse, his rant, really, by saying, well, you know, maybe I'm a utilitarian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Maybe that's what it comes down to. I'm a utilitarian, so I don't like stories about poor housekeepers. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and then the man leading the book group, you know, says, Next week... Right, yeah. Cut. <laughs> Cut. You know, and that's that's so menacing. You know, like, the, the next week is going to be about Le- Leviathan and about how life is nasty, brutish, and short. <laughs> well, I, I was thinking about it, too, in relation to, you know, Weissman's project, you know, this sort of empiricist, uh, naturalist project of of looking at reality and trying to find meaning and and what you see in these experiences right the the truth only comes from the accumulation of experiences in any one of his films and across films right um but the the only guy really giving that guy any pushback in that scene uh generationally seems you know one or two steps removed from him this woman it lives in a world full of humanity that isn't worthy. And even if they did say, oh, you're great, we really like you, or they gave her a pat on the back, it's meaningless because these are empty, selfish people who missed the whole point of living, and she's the only one who's found it. Uh, right, like like he's like, yeah. uh, and and I think, yeah, that that's maybe that difference between that, that sort of yuppie and, and leave it to beaver sort of ethos. Is. And then that... that... What follows after that is the blind, the blind ski, the blind skiers. Mm -hmm. Uh You know, the blind skiers, it's hard to tell at the beginning that they're blind because they just look like all the other skiers. They have sunglasses (laughs) on. And none of them are very good. Yeah. The only thing that they, I mean, they have a big sign across their chest that says blind (laughs) skier. (laughs) Which, that's the, yeah, that's how you know they're blind. I think throughout this film, but that, that, part uh, jumped out specifically but rare instance of some lav mic work going on you know we're shooting these oh, two sure, skiers yeah. from way off in the distance and hearing everything they say yeah. and you know i think there, there's a lot of the the sort of underlying soundtrack of the film is the kind of crunching of snow you know skis on yes. the snow going around um but but yeah that that part is great and i I do just want to briefly call attention to a short film by a a polish filmmaker alexandra masijic called connected that is about uh an adult couple and one of them is blind and they're going on a ski trip and and his wife is guiding him by walkie-talkie essentially like kind of turn left turn right um but i I programmed that in a fest a number of years ago you could watch it online but it's really good and reminded me of that I, I was gonna, I was gonna say before I forget, um, Scott, you you mentioned um, Monrovia and, and Aspen both have a sense of hopelessness, um, but you haven't seen Belfast. Well, uh, wait till you see. <laughs> I used to write for a um, website called Suck.com. 
don't know if you I don't know if you ever heard of that. It was it was in the it was in the you know the mid to late nineties through like two thousand and one, and it was started it was it was started by two guys who kind of worked for Wire, and it was you know it had a new article every day, and it kind of invented the form of having you know the the article in the middle with gutters that had a lot of uh-huh. stuff in them. And it was, you know, satirical writing that was meant to kind of take down the tech industry, but there was a lot of other stuff in it, too. And I wrote a, I wrote a piece about um, art, like art cows. You know how there was that mania in the, like, like 90s? Like in Chicago? Yeah, like all over the country yeah, where yeah, there would be, like, yeah, yeah. cows painted by different artists in oh, different parts of town. Parade. And that, yeah. was, that was a mania that was going on across the country. And I happened to be in Belfast, Maine. Oh, wow. And they had, they had painted bears. They were like, you know, uh, chainsaw sculpture bears that, um, were painted by the different local artists in different ways. So I was writing this piece called, the piece ended up being called, but is it cow? (laughs) Okay. And, you know, the piece was published in which I mocked all these, you know, civic art projects that were completely useless and ugly, (laughs) I thought. Mm Mm-hmm including the one that I had just seen in Belfast, Maine. And after writing that piece, I got the most vulgar, obscene piece of hate mail <laughs> that I've ever gotten for any piece that I've ever written. And it was from the mayor of Belfast, wow. Maine. Wow. <laughs> and it was just, he was so, so mad that I put down the art bears. <laughs> and he was just using the most, you know, I mean, he's just calling me things that I don't want to say in your podcast. <laughs> You know, and I and it was an email. Wow. You wow. know, so I checked, and it really was him. And I said to him, you know, you you know, every week suck.com publishes the mail that we get from readers. I mean, this this can be published. <laughs> you're the you're the mayor of Belfast, Maine. Do you really want this letter published on this site that thousands and thousands of people read? I gave him an out. You know. Yeah. Yeah. So they didn't publish the letter, but. You know, I just felt bad for the guy. He's going to look like such a, uh, like an idiot if this letter got right, published. Right. But that was That's my, funny. that was my experience in Belfast, maybe, Maine. Maybe he had a, a painting of a Pepsi machine up in his uh, living room and took offense. No. <laughs> he was very, very angry. He was so angry. <laughs> well... Uh, Scott, I think that that's a, a good note for us to, to uh, exit on. But um, was there anything else that you wanted to add that, that we hadn't touched on? Well, you know, I, I applied for a job working for Fred Wiseman. Oh. <laughs> oh, I was very young. It was the early 90s, around the time of Aspen. Oh, wow. And uh, I had just been working for a filmmaker named Raul Ruiz. Oh, wow. Who you, you have probably of heard of. He made one movie in the U.S., and it was called The Golden Boat. And I worked on that film on the set, but I was also the assistant editor on it. Okay. And, you know, it was shot on 16-millimeter film, and it was cut on 16-millimeter film. And, you know, just like a regular movie used to be back then. And so I, I was living in Boston at the time, and I thought that I would try to get more work as an assistant editor. So I applied for a job... Uh, there was an ad in the paper for a job at Zipporah Films, and I knew what that was. And I went there to get a job as the um, post production. It was like the post production editing room manager. You know, someone that was just gonna you know file the dailies and you know keep things in order. 
and I interviewed for that job, I, I really didn't have enough experience for it at all. And a woman who was his assistant editor interviewed, interviewed me, you know, he, I didn't meet him and I, I did not get the job, <laughs> you know, and, and it was one of those situations where as soon as the person started talking to me, I realized there was no way I was going to get this job. <laughs> yeah. I just had no chance at all of getting this. Yeah. I've been in this. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and then I got a job at, you know, being the assistant editor on a terrible, terrible documentary that a woman was cutting at WGBH. Okay. Um, that was a, an awful job and it totally turned me off to being a film editor. Oh, wow. hmm. So, you know, Fred Wiseman could have saved me, but, <laughs> but it wasn't meant to be. That's a shame. Wow. Thanks for sharing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, uh, I'm sure he laments it. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> only he know. Sure. yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Scott, for joining us. This is, oh, this is a blast. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. Uh, it's a great film to talk about. All right. Nice to meet you guys on on your podcast. Just don't be predictable. I don't want to see you outline stuff because that's not what stuff is about. There is no outline on stuff. Stuff is what's inside the outline. Okay. These are the most wonderful crayons. They they they'll do anything you want. It's like driving a fast car. 